everyone, and we're live. You're tuning to Cosmic Children. I'm your host, Kevin. And today I have a guest that was introduced to me by Nick. So what I find most fascinating about this individual that's in the studio with me today is that he works within the, the pipeline of making films. And the pieces that he has worked on has received quite a number of accreditation as well as accolades. So Jin Xiang, could you please introduce yourself to those that might not have heard about you before? Okay. Um, hi, thanks for having me on this podcast, uh, Kevin. Uh, my name is Jin Xiang and I'm a producer in Singapore, also a filmmaker. So I actually produce a range of uh, content from feature films to TV series, but also events as well. Um, I guess most well-known of, of the work that I've produced um, most likely would be Tan Bi Tiam's uh, Tiong Baru, that's in 2020. And then I would have uh, Bu Jun Feng's Apprentice back in 2016. And uh, in between that, actually, also Eric Ku's uh, Ramen Te uh, in 2018, I believe. Yeah, if I got the date wrong, <laughs> someone's going to kill me. Um, but beyond that as well, um, very fortunate to have worked on uh, two anthologies yep. for HBO Asia, uh, one involving food and one, um, one horror anthology as well, Folklore and Food Law. And it was awesome to get to work with different directors from around the region as well, because we always talk about Singapore being very isolated in mm. terms of like our perspective. So it's, we're always being encouraged to go out and yep. see the rest of the world. And yep. we are so proud when people work abroad. But I think um, it's always so nice to work with directors from different cultures because you really see the world very intimately in a different way because you're not seeing it from the perspective of a tourist, but um, from somebody who's on the ground, right? Because you're seeing how they portray their society as well and its flaws and not just the sheen, uh, something I believe Singaporeans can relate to as well. Um, beyond that, of course, I do my national service. So I worked <laughs> on uh, uh, NDP uh, 2016 uh, and SEA Games 2015. And um, I think most recently, the Singapore Bicentennial. Um, as a director, I've done a number of films. Uh, I like doing comedy a lot. Mm. So... Um, but I think most people may have actually seen probably the NDP music video that came out this year. The ones, that, uh, the one that's pretty viral. Uh, well, I, I suppose so. You suppose I would say so. That the, I, so I would modest. say that the the dance is more viral than the music video now. Um, but yeah, very very proud to have have been a part of that um, as a co-director with uh, Gerald Trong from Finding Pictures. Um, but together, both of us actually worked on another film called Piece of Meat. Uh, which traveled to uh, Director's Fortnite that's in Khan. Mm. It's a parallel section. Um, and Piece of Meat did, did very well for us as animation. So I think, you know, after we were a little bit cheeky in how we represented Singaporeans as different objects because we are so materialistic, <laughs> um, to move to something completely different in the vein of a Monty Python to do a yep. government music video, which is always lovely. Mm. That has been a fantastic introduction. It's like ripped straight from Wikipedia. Well, uh, <laughs> I I I didn't write my Wikipedia page. Okay. If, if that's what's being suggested. Uh, I yeah. Okay. Um. Initially, you mentioned that you are a, a producer mm -hmm. and a filmmaker. Could you explain to the audience, even to me, like what is a producer in your definition, and what is the difference between the two? Because I think it's easily confused. Because when you go and watch something, it's usually oh, it's directed by this individual, but. I think the, the 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 producing credit might not be perhaps as quote unquote glamorous or might not be as well known that people know oh it's actually uh 
perhaps an individual that's producing and working together in tandem with the director. So could you please explain? Sure, I'm very happy to because um, I think what my friends always say is uh, producers are the base players of the film industry, right? Mm. Because you, you do do a lot of the work to make a track successful, but you're re- very rarely, it's, it's the scope of it understood. And so I would say filmmaker is actually more of a blanket term that comprises of a producer and a director. And the director essentially oversees the creative direction of the film. This means uh, in being involved in the development of it to the production of it and of course the completion of it from a creative standpoint. Mm. Uh, Where the producer comes in, uh, there are many types of producers actually, but the producer essentially handles uh, the logistics. So in, in a sense, we are a project manager that does not that has less of a creative say because we are not in charge of the creative vision of the project. Mm. So we handle all those saikang stuff la, that, that people don't handle. So we handle the money, mm. we handle the operations, we handle the financing, and we of course we handle the marketing and the distribution. So the post and I guess the pre? That's right. Okay. So we handle all, all these aspects and um, we, but because it's impossible to be an expert in, in any of these aspects, uh, all of these aspects rather, um, usually with many films, you find that they're money producers because they're different scopes of responsibilities. Fair. And the lead producers often referred to as the delegate producer. Mm. So in, in Hollywood films, you always have one producer credit just before yep. the director. That would be the delegate producer. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, I think a producer, uh, really more than anything, uh, we are really a babysitter. <laughs> Why would you say that? We are babysitter because we are often taking care of and, and juggling many different personalities and egos in, in the process of a production. Yep. And it is a, genuinely, when you think about it, it's a, such a vulnerable process because so many people are really putting their heart and soul into the project as well. And you can tell, right, mm. when they take a creative risk. So when your director has spent like two years writing the scripts and if, if the film were to fail, it would really be his name on the line, right? Mm. Because they'll say, oh, this who directed a bad film, for example. And that kind of burden leads to occasional depression, uh, like anxiety. And I think managing that along with the other departments, for example, wardrobe, yep. makeup, uh, even the editor, post-production, all these kind of things. It's always um, a very long marathon that you're running. And because I think everybody always wants to do the best job, mm. but they may not always have the best resources to do their job. Because we are in a very small country, Singapore only 5 million people, right? Maybe <laughs> six max. Yeah. And our population is so diverse. So we don't have a homogenous, a more homogenous audience such as Korea, mm. right? Which has very protectionistic, a nationalistic um, policy making in order to grow the industry. And, you know, I think you've really seen the results of their soft power mm. um, really penetrating the rest of the world. It's a yep. very conscious government effort. Um, but yeah, in, in Singapore, our government has been really supportive of, of, of local film industry in honesty. And I think it's just a great time to really be a producer in Singapore because um, there is genuinely a new wave of uh, directors out there who are trying to do new things, different things. And I think there has been actually an incredible um, sustained success of local films in um, the festival circuit at the very least. So I guess that would say more artistic work Mm. has been really validated by the international audience. Uh, And this would go back to... uh, as recent as uh, Anthony Chen's Wet Seasons, which won in Ping Yao Film Festival uh, by a very famous director called uh, Jia Zhang Ke. And then you would also have um, Chris Yeo's uh, A Land Imagined, mm. uh, which won the Golden Leopard. Wow. Yeah. So um, 
I am curious to know what your your journey has been to get to this particular point. Was it something you have always wanted to be like a producer slash filmmaker? Mm. Like, did you go to school for it? Like, what could you paint me the picture as to how what was the journey like? Oh well, it's thick, it's been a roller coaster ride to be honest. A fun one. Um, I, well, I wouldn't <laughs> say fun all the time. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I feel that, that being in the film industry for the long run, you have to be a masochist, right? Because okay. you're working. The, the standard is to work 20-hour days. Okay. Uh, and really, I think you sacrifice a lot uh, in order to pursue this line of work. Mm. But ob- obviously, with something um, altruistic in mind, a vision, a goal. Um, but I guess to where my journey began was really in uh, drama club in uh, secondary school because I loved uh, theater and the drama and you know, it, it just provided an avenue for you to understand the way other people lived. And not just from Singapore, from, from the rest of the world. And it, it is this comparisons of how we live and what we can say mm. versus how, what other people communicate to their family members, for example, that brings your own identity into sharp focus. And what I mean by that is to say that, you know, let's say like you want to talk to your parents, but you, you never talk to them about sex, for example. Because we're, we're Asians, right? Mm. <laughs> Um, yeah. rest of the world still awkward but you you, you actually have heard of Ang, Ang Mo's like for example having conversations between siblings yep. about, about sex about yep. parties and things like that but you hear that much less with Asian families right mm. because we love each other we always get together for the patriarchs dinner and yep. this yep. like round table with a huge lazy Susan that doesn't seem to work but it, it, it is this differences in culture and everything that I think I'm always so fascinated by in that we we understand how we can live and, and the choices that we have and are able to make mm. that are separate from our own isolated experiences uh, based on how we've grown up and how we've been um, how we've been inculcated uh, in a system that that leads to certain values as well. Values that are very important, of course. Yeah. Uh, but it would be amiss to, to not recognize that um, other people's experiences are just as important to provide perspective on your own. So as simple as something like um, racial harmony, right? It's like, we all just say, ah, yeah, racial harmony, racial harmony, that Chinese guy still makes the casual Indian joke, yep, racist yep. joke. Um, but as sinister as that is, I think you you have much much better understanding of it when you when you start seeing and hearing things from other parts of the world yep. that really put things into the perspective of how fortunate we are. But of course, I think it's important not to rest on our laurels Definitely. for the successes of it too try to try to progress and I think filmmaking is really uh, a part of that conversation and how we try to put work out there that encourages conversation it encourages you to see a different perspective to consider something different as well so a very simple example of this would be um, any sort of LGBTQ films you see in Singapore like I think Michelle Chong attempted one with uh, three peas in a pod for Mm -hmm. example where the twist was uh, spoilers alert but um, it was not actually a romance between the lead character and the female lead, but actually it was actually these two guys trying to communicate their feelings to one another. And to us, it may be like, oh, this is this is piecemeal, right? We've seen it done by other countries. But I think, can you imagine for so many uh, people who are from a Mandarin-speaking background who have not had this conversation, mm. seeing this kind of work, seeing this kind of representation, this is, this is a powerful thing, this affirmation. That that they are not weirdos and things like that. Um, obviously, I mean, for me myself, I do not belong to that community, but I'm I'm hugely supportive of it because I think it is so important to move beyond mere tolerance to understanding, and I think that is what 
art can really do, right? It incites conversation, it encourages it. And uh, film, of course, I think has some of the greatest um, means of permeating uh, pop culture, mm. right? I mean, everybody knows our boys to men. Yep. yep, yep. So, uh, case in point. <laughs> I'm just surprised that Drama Club taught you that much. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I was very fortunate. I think we were known, just known as a drum, drum, uh, comedy club uh, mm. back in the day. But that really um, developed a love for the arts. And then I think when I was uh, studying uh, abroad, then um, I was actually, actually read law. So read when law? I. Oh, law. Yeah. So when I was when I was uh, studying law and things like that, um, theater became so difficult, right? Mm. Despite Australia having that culture, because um, I never feel felt that I could have a, a, a an Asian voice in a in a predominantly Chinese, predominantly Australian or white uh, culture, unless mm. I were to join the Hong Kong Drama Club, which <sighs> is a completely different and politically charged ball game. Um, <laughs> okay. But yeah, I think from there, then I started watching films and films really, I what I really appreciated, it was, it did lack a little bit of that magical, uh, intangible, um, transient nature that theatre provides. But film was really immortal. All the flaws were put plainly on screen, but it could evoke something so personal and so private through such a small portable image that it really captured my uh, attention. And so then I started to try to make films uh, first stuff, obviously not very good. Mm. Um, but it was when I met one of my friends, uh, this this uh, savant known as Tan Kang Wei, mm-hmm. um, that, that we started to work together and uh, we made a short film that um, won a few awards in a local competition. And uh, that got the attention of Eric Ku, uh, who we had a drink with. And subsequently, you know, you have to be a bit thick-skinned. Mm-hmm. So I asked him, uh, well, I said, I have to have an internship. I had my internship there, um, and then somehow I got I got hired, and I've been there for I think eight years now. That's a lifetime in millennial terms. <laughs> that that is a lifetime, or even in internet terms. So, I'm curious to know what has your experience um being abroad and studying abroad. What has it taught you, and how has it informed your perspective in regards to the perhaps the media you consume now and the types of film that that you would want to make right now. Right. So I think uh, I'll answer this in two parts, I guess, because um, I, I watched The Minister, so at least answer it in two parts, right? So the first part would be that um, I think studying abroad, there, there was this uh, great, there, there's less censorship. So you're more encouraged to learn new things, explore new things, um, especially at a university, right? I think tertiary, uh, the best thing about it is that that's when you really develop your personal philosophy of what you want to do at that age group when you are in university, it is slightly less about the studying yep. than about like doing this extra external things to see what interests you, yep. uh, what sort of hobbits, hobbies you develop because I think that's so important for your own sanity, right? It's like experimentation and finding your own voice ultimately. Yeah, yep. totally. So um, I was very fortunate. I live very near a video store called Video Dogs um, in Melbourne. Um, that's along Swan Ligon Street, which mm-hmm. is a talent food place. And uh, yeah, every day I would just go there and rent the film. And it was my first time going to that sort of dank, uh, dirty <laughs> video store where the carpets were never washed. Or, or you could tell from the fingerprints of the of the wood uh, wooden cabinets and, and shelves that there was history because you so many oily pizza oh. drenched uh, fingers, right? And I can see their mother. Yeah. yeah, and they, they have great categories. They'll have like best European films are like, 
uh, horror, uh, like gore, gore, gore horror, you know? So it started to expand your vocabulary of what film can be by virtue of character categorization. Yep. And you see that a lot in like Netflix, for example, yep. the more creative places, maybe like movie, which is an indie platform, mm. would characterize it slightly differently. Yep. So I think they characterize it like one one category would be like, like Black Lives Matter, or like silent comedy of mm. the 30s. And these modes of categorization really allow you to understand film as, as movements. But that really um, made me very interested in the filmmaking. And then, so I started to try it, worked with Kang Wei and yeah, thankfully I have a, some, some form of a career yeah. today. <laughs> but were you back then just, uh, just watching out of pure interest or were you watching with the goal in mind to perhaps one day create something like that? Uh, I always enjoy creating things. Mm. Um, strangely actually maybe more than watching okay uh i think there is a slight difference to that um but i watched it at a time i think you know it just seems so distant to you right because back then you didn't have handphone cameras you didn't have tiktok right which has been a revelation to me by the way like i, TikTok? I downloaded tiktok a month ago okay and i can see why it's so magnetic and i really feel that the next great filmmaker around around the world could come from tiktok because it, you become so familiar with the vernacular of it right the yep. creation process yep. of it um but yeah I, I never started um intending to do film per se but i guess when you watch certain films they really resonate with you in a deep way like um you know with some films you cry but you understand why you're crying but other things like it, it is a conversation because you understand something so deeply that you never initiate a conversation about mm. before that right and when when you watch a film and it touches you deeply with something that you cannot say, that's when you have connected with someone. And the fact that film is a communal experience, that we're watching it together in a cinema, when you laugh at the same time, when you when you cry at the same time, um, I think that's the most rewarding experience because you know that you're not alone in in, in your own private life, right? Mm -mm. That that your values are, are what you laugh or cry at are shared. And it's 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 never about the majority per se because films represent such a diverse range of voices that it's so important to remember that um, these voices, even if it communicates to someone, it could, you could really save someone's life, uh, mm. change their perspective of the world, right? And um, I just always remember this, this time I was watching the Disney film Coco. Have you seen it? No. Coco is a great film. I won't spoil it for you, but yeah. Coco is um, it's about Mexican Day of the Dead. Mm. So South American uh, folklore inspired because they love doing this folklore mm. stuff at Disney, right? Yeah. It's like uh, colonialization in some form, right? Becomes Disney fight. But I think it's honestly completely great. And I think um, discovering the commonality is especially lovely because Coco is a family film. And when I was watching it, there was a twist halfway in the middle where you could totally see coming but me and my guy friends uh, watching it, there were three of us guys who just from university made it a habit to go watch this Pixar films, right? Mm. Um, we were just crying in our seats. We were just sobbing, mucus coming out of our, our, our nostrils, uh, eyes all, all drenched, uh, swollen, maybe a bit of a Lee Kuan Yew kind of look, yeah. right? And we were all sobbing with tissue and everything. And then this 12-year-old uh, girl in front of us turns around and looks at me, stares at me in the darkness of the, of the cinema and said, can you can you please stop? Can you please? Some some of us are actually trying to watch the movie. And I was like, 
This movie is meant for you. <laughs> you are so heartless. You know? Come on, you know, I mean, you'd expect it to be a little bit gender yeah, biased, yeah, yeah. right? <laughs> like, you know, four grown men just crying and everything, right? <laughs> and, and I'll never forget that because, like, that's part of the joy of a, of a cinema-going experience. I think, like, you know, I don't believe in, like, this sort of, like, purity, like, you sit down, be quiet, hold all, all, all <laughs> the same, all, and respect the director's intention for you sit silently. Some films demand the response. Like, when you watch a horror film, it's it's great when every when you when you're sitting in a silent thing. It's a tense scene. Yep. The stupid blonde girl is just going to go in the <laughs> toilet, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then you hear this. You know what's gonna happen. Yeah, you know what's gonna happen, yeah. and it's great, right? Because you have this person in the audience saying, "Why are why so stupid?" <laughs> and and it is that which really informs the cinema going experience. When it is a response, it is a response that 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 connects all of us, and and I think that's what makes it so fun as well, right? That's why you have outdoor cinema. Mm. Which is it's always so fun. Um, yeah, is 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 it always understood that uh going to the cinema should be a bit more relaxed in that way, or has it developed along the years where it became more of like a like a solo experience? Like you're not supposed to to perhaps be too disruptive. You're not supposed to be too loud. Yeah, because the 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 fact about that you you mentioned uh, let's say if 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 it's it's a horror show, it is expected that you will you will you will scream you will you will, you will, you will, you will have outwardly expressions but i think for like a let's say like a regular action show or like like a romance you're supposed to kind of keep quiet quote unquote mm. in a sense but what you just said it sounds like a very interesting take on it it's a very interesting perspective that it's actually a dialogue between the film and yourself that you're allowed to express yourself i i think all films are definitely dialogues it's just whether uh the nature uh, the, the mood and tone created by the film encourages it so when you watch a prestige drama for example you, you may laugh if they have lighter moments, but really you are trying to pay attention because the filmmaker is consistently challenging you through maybe a more subtle approach to try to discern their intention. Mm. And, and that's, those kind of cinemas don't, doesn't call for a response. But it's the same thing. There are different types of concerts with music, right? Mm-hmm. Some concerts encourage you to jump up and down in your mosh pit. Yeah. Some of them better sit down, listen classical music, you know, hear the quality of, of, of the instrument, of the acoustics of the hall. So I think it's the same with, with, with uh, film going as well. Um, but I'm always, always enamored by the idea of audience participation because I think that cinema... Sh- there is, there is to qualify myself, there always will be a domain where cinema is intellectual. But for most people, cinema is not intellectual. Cinema is is part of pop culture, it's something mm. that you consume. Mm. And it is so different from theater in the sense that you always pay like 50 bucks for a theater seat, right? And you make mm. an obstructed view on yep. the second floor. Yep. But with cinema, $14 is egalitarian, <laughs> right? <laughs> And for me, I, I always uh, reference uh, the words of uh, Ian McDonough, who did, I think, three billboards mm-hmm. and in Bruges, if, if you've seen that. Um, and he said that um, he loves cinema, the medium more than theater for the reason that it is egalitarian. Anybody can watch it. And because we want our works to reach a broader audience, uh, I think so much of what I appreciate about the form is that it is accessible and you can have your own opinion about it, whether you like or hate it. Mm. You know, it is the discourse that's important. And that's why I always appreciate good film criticism because it, it challenges you to examine it from a different way. It is a conversation. And that's why it's a shame when we do not engage these conversations because there are new ways of thinking about it, right? And and I think it's a fundamental curiosity that allows us to 
understand a little bit more of ourselves, you know? Like when when you're young, you're forced to read to kill a mockingbird, right? And I think that's really like the value of literature. Um you it makes you question your own values about like um what that to not judge a book by its cover, first of mm-hmm. all, right? Um and I think these parables or these kind of feelings, emotions that that art can bring uh, have a great way to transform society in, in very subtle ways as well. So for example, when I was working on the music video for This Year's NEP, when I first took it on, I, was, I kept thinking to myself, um, because I worked with this uh, visual artist slash theater practitioner called Brian Gotong Tan, mm-hmm. and he said something which really stuck to me, which was that, you know, why I do National Day Parade for all of the restrictions that you have is that you are creating new visual history you are creating new visual history in what can be done in the future and to provide alternatives and, and, and opportunities for new creators to, to be a part of that um, canon of, of work as well. And, um, you know, if, if, if you can do it, you have to do it. Because if not, someone else may do it and, and then you're gambling whether they can yep. do, they, they share the same values as you and hopefully yep. they do, you yep. know. Um, but I think to transform the landscape, you need more people to take these kind of risks because it is always more tiring because you you have to go through more rounds mm-hmm. with the back and forth for uh, some sort of client management, account servicing, you know, which I, I'm sure advertising people really know about. <laughs> really? <laughs> Keyword being really? Really, yes. <laughs> um, but beyond all that, you know, I think sometimes the fight is worth it now that, that you're able to allow people to dream and i think for me as a filmmaker that 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 is my life's telos telos being i guess the like you know your goal in life that you set for yourself is a greek term like an acorn's telos is to become a great oak tree right hmm. a man requires his telos to have a sense of purpose in life and i feel that i can really make a difference in how what we imagine Singapore to be, you know, and how we change things, how we see things. And I think I'm so appreciative to be of a generation that shares similar views, you know, because I feel that um, I'm being challenged consistently in the best possible way by my contemporaries, Mm. uh, producers and directors uh, accordingly as well. Yeah. How did you come to discover this particular uh, Talos? To discover? Yeah. Sorry? The huh. Talos. Yeah. Um what if 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 you could explain what happened, or did someone say something, or did you read something, or did you even watch something that uh pushed you in this particular direction to realize, hey, this is actually what I want my life's work to be to inspire? I I don't um I wouldn't be able to pinpoint an exact point, mm. to be honest. Um, but I would be able to say that um Obviously, it started from like a place where I was just doing things for fun to begin with, just trying to express yourself. And then as you start to see other people's works and you start to see the public's response to it, and as you start to have certain uh, resources to be able to make uh, decisions uh, to shape the work um, in the capacity of a producer as well, right? Um, you start to feel like you could, you, you could really give back you could really give back to a younger generation because uh, I think when I first started off, it was old school film. I'm not sure the same in other industries, but old school film is like, you learn by getting scolded. You learn by mm. getting, by expanding your Hokkien vocabulary. Yep. 
Yeah. That's all too common. Yeah. <laughs> yep. yeah so I remember I remember the, the first time I was on set, I didn't know what a set was and I, I didn't know what was going on. So I, I would just like try to figure it out, right? I read on the internet, read, watch videos, whatever. And then I thought to myself, oh, I could improve this, you know? I could find a smarter way to do this, which was, um, so I, you know, you always have a plan, like where your camera's supposed to place, where your actor's supposed to be. So I thought, okay, I'll be very smart, you know? I would draw a diagram on transparency for every single setup and I'll project it so everybody knows. Hmm visually where what the next shot is going to be right yep and the head of the of the equipment rental house this guy could but tan who's a legend he pulled me aside forced me to smoke i mean these these are these are things which are <laughs> part and parcel of it yeah. and he says you fucking t-bai what are you doing you yep. know yep you think what you are still in the army uh, fuck you you know mm. and to me i was like very amused by this because i was like i i was never an officer by the way but i just thought that you know, this could be a, a strong way with a mode of communication that people understand. Mm. But it also made me uh, realize that, you know, people were willing to teach, but they wanted to teach fast because the turnover rate in our industries are very high because you work long hours and the pay is not commiserate to your effort. Mm. But I think people are drawn to it for a reason. Um, in this particular case, uh the challenges became immediately clear that I needed to try to find a way to help the next generation avoid this trial and error process to learning some of these fundamentals yep. so that they can engage the more robust uh, 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 things which I think we need to tackle. Mm. It's not about the physical execution of a shoot per se, but it's really about so-called the creative above-the-line aspects, which means to say that finding a good script writer is extremely difficult in Singapore. I would say that there are, that's why you often find like director and script writer would be the same person, right? In many films. But they kind of do play different roles. They do play different roles. Um, often you have the screenwriter and director being the same person because of budget, mm. because screenwriters are not paid that well in Singapore, mm. unless you work for Channel 8. And I think maybe you could pay like maybe $4,000 for like a two-week script. Mm. So that's good, right? Mm. But the economy and 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 the capitalistic nature of, of it has actually, I feel, withheld our industry's growth because you, you need to spend time like actually deeply thinking about something, yep. you know? And that's yep. why like you read in the States of so many of these great artists, uh, great uh, creators coming out of like living off the dole for many years or something like that. I think Vin Diesel, uh, I'm just naming action heroes because- they're a perfect example, right? Because they don't come from a more like suffering artist kind of background. Even Sylvester Stallone, when he wrote Rocky, he wrote Rocky in three days when he was inspired. Mm. And he wanted to make the film, the studio wanted to buy it, but he couldn't make the film because the studio wouldn't cast him as Rocky. So he decided to take it away and do it his own. And in mm. order to, to make the film, he had to sell his dog. Wow. He actually sold his dog to make the film. And after... He, after he sold the dog, I can't remember the exact price, but all I know for certain is that when he finished film, film was a big success. He went back to the owner, he paid 10 times the price and bought his dog back. And I think, you know, you know, I always wonder when I hear stories like this, and it seems so incredible to us, right? Mm -hmm. But it's actually not incredible. It's such a humanistic thing to do, right? Because, you know, it's like, you will obviously pay whatever for your family members and everything. And, but for Singaporeans, we're a lot more practical, right? Why oh, is it really worth it? Ten times the price, us, right? Yeah. And, you know, the values of which are, are so important. And I think 
you know, good good films, good art can really make you question your values. Lah. Yeah, I've kind of digressed a little bit, but yeah. I love digressing on this podcast. <laughs> so you mentioned previously that you worked on uh, various short films for Singapore, exclusively, let's say, the, the Bicentennial and the most recent NDP one. Um, how do you try to do things differently each time? And could you recount like, well, like the first project you took on, the earliest project with regards to doing something, I think for Singapore, what was your mindset? going into it like you had to you kind of have to balance a bit of what you wanted to do and the vision of the project you have in mind could, could, could you talk about it sure I think when you start off um, it is very difficult to assert your creative identity purely because um, unless you're unless you're operating at a much smaller scale right um, but it was really about learning the ropes at an early stage and I think when I had a chance to share my perspectives and everything you would also be very considerate about what you say, mm. right? How much you can assert your personality. Um, I think obviously there are creatives out there who are really independent and I, I, I respect them so much for that because I feel that you're pushing something new. But I think it takes time and I think it takes um, practice and I think it takes commitment because I firmly believe that in life, only the disciplined are free mm. and it requires great discipline to be a creative as well. You know, it's not about just having one idea. So many people have great ideas. It's about executing the idea and having the discipline to train yourself in the range of skill sets that make you a director. Meaning say you need to be well-versed in, let's say like, um, not just the camera, but like fashion design or like storytelling, uh, even like how do you work with a human being into inhabiting another character? Like that's so easily forgotten, right? You're actually telling another human being to work as, act as another character. Yep. You know? And that's that's an incredible kind of role to, to play in as well. Um, so I think that, that answers the first bit of the question. What's the second bit again? Could you recount the, the earlier, uh, is it film? The earlier short film that you did for, for Singapore, be like the Bicentennial, right. the SEA Games. Yeah. Right. What was one of the earliest one that you worked on? Earliest one would probably be MOE. I did an MOE ad, but that was in a different side, different capacity as line as a line producer. Mm. So what I did uh, for the MOE ad was um, it was just government project, and I saw a director, and you know, it's it is so easy to forget. That time I was you you always see adverts on TV, but you don't know. You just go to the cinema and say, "Oh, that one no good. This one no good." Right? Yep. Um, but it it is so difficult because that made me realize that there are so many layers to it as well. And as I moved on, I understood that it was really, um, some people treat it in an adversarial manner, but I, I really feel it's about like communication. And sadly, I feel many Singaporeans may not be at, as deft, uh, accurate in terms of communication. What do you what, mean by that? What is the other person really trying to say when they make a comment or when, when they have a certain concern? And how do you diffuse it, right? Even if you think it's a waste of time, or it's a silly comment, you don't want to make them lose face as well, mm. right? Because I think it's just a polite thing to do. So you you are, but also you don't want to just assume that you're right and find a way just to, you know, you can be so deaf that like explaining things away, they stop listening. And that's why I think it's so important to consistent listen to what they listen to whoever you're working with and to determine what is their concern. So for me, NDP is a great example, right? When you do something like NDP, the concern is, they're trying to do something cool, but they don't want any like public backlash. Mm. They don't want people to write in to complain yep, yep. about 
how anything. cheesy it is. Yep. Uh, yep. So it's the the mode of creation is more risk averse in terms of content. So I try not to fight on the content side of things for and for when I do these government projects, but I try to focus more on the technical execution of it. That means do I do like uh for example, I try to produce a one take music video for NDP for 2016, uh, even with the recent one to include animation in mm. as well. I think those are areas which I can explore and I could have great creative growth as well in, in using using the opportunity to um, experiment. You know, it becomes an experiment and I can take it to other work as well. <laughs> yeah. In, in, in view of the most recent uh, NDP uh, music video that you did, could you share what was the original concept and the original intent behind that that particular uh, video? Sure, I think um, when when the when the brief first came to us, uh, we had a pitch for it. Um, they just said this here is a song, um, and we wanted to do something with animation. So I called. W- I called why? Uh, I think because this year's NEP is is animation themed. Okay. So so actually they've hired I think almost all the animators. It's not the form. easiest thing to do animation. Animation, you know. We take it for granted, but uh, actually all the Japanese animators don't really know they're grossly underpaid, you know. It's a terrible industry to be in. Yeah, yeah. so even when you're in the mid-30s, you get paid 3000 as a senior, senior animator. It's, it's ridiculous, yeah. Um, But Singapore, yeah, I guess, you know, I, I always talk to the animators, I always wonder, like, if Japan is going to suffer like that, how do you make it sustainable in such an expensive country as Singapore? Mm. Um, But I think going back to the idea of the music video, I think me and Jared, we sat down, we were discussing about how to include animation in it uh, and to integrate it meaningfully as well, right? What does the animation actually mean? So when we were working on it, I think um, we were both looking out the window and I think, uh, I can't remember who, but uh, then we started talking about the idea of perspectives that when you look out the the window, what what do you see or what can you see? Mm. I guess linking back to another NDP song, right? What, what, can, what you? can you see? <laughs> I, I like that song, by the yeah. way. Um, but yeah, so with, with this kind of uh, perspectives, and I think, you know, with the song titled The Road Ahead, what is ahead is intangible, we don't know. But it's it's always a choice, right? Whether you choose to be a Charlie Brown and that you're a pessimistic sort of individual, or whether you choose to believe in some sort of hope, uh, some sort of um, something, something that may feel less practical, but aspirational even. Mm-hmm. And um, that's why we we tried we brought in animation to take on that role, and you see that the four different singers have a different animation style in order to represent perspectives and how they are slightly different as well um, over over time as well. Because actually, our MV starts off with the end of the day when people are going back. It goes to night, which we hide with the animated sequence, which is like a semi dream sequence, mm. and then you go back and it's a new day again. And is this idea that you know every morning you wake up. Like if you wake up at 6 a.m., it's like, wow, very sien, right? But you know that there's so many other people out there doing <laughs> yeah, that as yeah, well, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's always this conflict between like feeling grateful, but also feeling dissatisfied. It's the paradox of being a human. Yeah. Par- par- paradox <laughs> of first world living also. Yeah, la. first world living, yeah. And and I think with the music video, we're trying to just say that, you know, every, everybody's going to have to get up, wake up, and it will take time, but you know, we we can we every step is a is a step forward as well. So I think on that note, I think perspective, light uh light as in time of day was a big part of it. And I think the last bit was really movement as well. Mm. So when the camera isn't moving, people will be moving the frame in a more dynamic manner. Uh, like 
the camera would be moving. Um, so we tried we tried to use these three fundamental like concepts to shape the music video so that it is you may not you may not pinpoint it, but you can definitely uh, feel it. Yep, because uh, I refer to like Bresson, right? Uh, who is this like very famous uh, Italian filmmaker? And he he said like it is less important for your work to be intelligible. Uh, is yeah to be talent well to be understood, mm. but and but it is most important that your work is a is able to allow people to feel. He's more he was always more interested in the feeling of things as well, and I think especially in such a logical country as Singapore, feeling of work is always more important as well, and um, grounding it in in like some sort of technical understanding is always the best way to go. You know? But but going back to how intangible feelings are, how is it always like a like a, like a, like a gamble or a chance to to perfectly convey whatever feelings that feelings and intent that you guys might have going to it to the audience because the audience might not catch it perhaps on first viewing or even second viewing mm-hmm. because some, a lot of these a lot of the times it's it's not guaranteed that whatever you are intending or have intended that the audience might get as well. Of course, it's always a gamble, and as filmmakers, you experiment. Because past a certain point, if you say the same message over and over again, it gets boring, right? Like, I'm I'm probably never going to get a job from StarHub after this, but you know, every year they do the StarHub music video. No, for I'm National not Day. aware. Yeah, of. so they did one where mothers go up and they sing Madrila Singapura and things like that. And I guess the first year it feels very fresh, but when it becomes like a tradition that you stick to too uh, rigidly, yeah, rigidly, then you, you lose that sort of imagination that feeling, right? Because you are numb to it. It's mm. like I punch you every day. It's still going to feel like <laughs> shit, right? But after a while, it's like, okay, I wait for my daily yep, punch. Yep, get it over yep, and done with yep, like medicine, yep, right? Yep. Uh, not to say punching is medicine, yep. uh, but um, so so in, in that vein, I feel like when, when I say a feeling, you're always gambling that your audience will get it and not all your audience will get it, right? Because filmmaking is a gamble. Uh, 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 it's a gamble. It's a gamble. It's always a gamble. You know, when they make 3D cinema, uh, they, they try some sort of, of subject matter. It's always a gamble. And then slowly it becomes more refined, right? In terms of like, what is the gamble worth? What is the budget? And what is the potential ROI based on a, 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 a long-term view as well? But going back to the idea of emotions, I think as filmmakers, it's like... You, you you can only just try. You have an idea, but you can only just consistently try to put it out there. And um, especially for a more populist medium, that means you need to really think about your audience as well. Mm. Because I think uh, one of my producing friends, Jeremy Truss, said it best when he said that um, you, as a director, you're always thinking about who your audience is mm-hmm. and to, because you're a brand. Um, not to say that you are a commodity. And again, going back to the troubles of capitalism, but... Um, not to say that you're a commodity, but when people watch your stuff, you they're expecting something. Yep. And as an early creative, you don't have enough of an overview of work to say I can do something way different so soon as well, mm. unless you are considered a genius at the start, lah. But I think the creative exploration is extremely important, and you see it from the best directors because making one film is so hard. To make two or three great films means that your philosophy is solidified already. Mm. You know, yeah. So I have, I have, I have a two part of a question. I think first of all is off the backs of the global pandemic, has mm. it affected how 
you went into creating this particular NDP music video? Has it changed or has it affected anything? Um, I guess for me, the biggest shame is that I can't have my friends come on set and cameo in it because I love putting my friends in, in my work because it's just a fun visual memory, right? Mm. That like I can look back. But um, this pandemic has not affected the music video per se. I think the only thing that we've really included is really the tone mm. because it's a, with the NDP music video, it's really about the it's about how do you make a hopeful tone, but it's not too overly optimistic. It's about the quiet confidence and strength. And it's one of those things that's like, okay, la, say, say, la. How, do you, how, do you, how do you portray it <laughs> yeah. in, in, a, in a more tasteful way? Because, um, yeah, it's so easy to fall back to that like smiling, happy children for yep. like three minutes kind of video yep. as well. Um, and I feel that... Um, yeah, I, f- I feel with other projects, those are probably more affected because producers around the world are thinking about like, how do you how do you scale it for most part? Like, you're not going to do like these epic set pieces and, and mm. the mode of thinking has, has been changing as well because content in theatrical set to say it's going to really suffer because people are, people's viewing habits have changed. Mm. How, how Singaporeans, I'm sure the number of Singaporeans that actually go to a cinema will be much less than before. It's probably dead, yeah. Yeah, because you have such cheap TV screens, you can watch at home, it's so convenient, you can put your feet up, yep. you know, play with your dog or whatever, you know. Um, but I think that's, that, that is a greater challenge, like why should stories exist on that canvas now, you know? Why, why exist on that canvas as opposed to TV or a podcast even or TikTok, you know? So I think it will it will always survive, always cover a role. It's just that um, it'll be more competitive. Yeah. So the second part of the question is, how has working on the various uh, short films for Singapore across the years has it changed to your view of Singapore? Uh, I would say that it that my view has matured. Okay, please explain. All right, because it always sounds nice when you say you've matured, lah. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I would say that I think there are always a lot of struggles and a great dichotomy in Singapore film. Mm. And when I say that, I mean to say that the dichotomy between the English-speaking crowd and the Mandarin ones as well, in terms of the content you consume. So half of Singapore, more than half would like JJ Lin, for example. Mm-hmm. Right, but the other half won't even care if Jaden is in town, and um, that's one dichotomy. I think the second one is also between the audiences as well. So between more artistic work and more commercial fare. Mm. All right, so you, a big, a great example is as simple as "Be with Me" by Eric Koo, very art, art, artistic film, and of course you have like uh, "Our Boys to Men," very mm. commercial film. I mm. think top grossing, of course, two parts, fourteen million, I believe. Yeah, phenomenal number. Um. But yeah, these these sort of dichotomies um, and reconciling it, I think, requires a lot of uh, experimentation and patience. On the part of the audience consumption or the, 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 the people behind the camera? Look, I, I think it's definitely the people behind the camera. The, the responsibility lies in them. It would be arrogant to assume people want to watch your stuff or they should watch your stuff. Um, and that's why like I always feel like directors should let go should never touch the trailer edit at all never could you please explain that why a director shouldn't touch the trailer edit because they don't know anything about marketing they're not marketing experts if you are a marketing expert sure but for you to think that you know everything it is completely arrogant I would say 
because the trailer is really like the marketing people to reach the audience and the broadest and and obviously they want you to succeed also right? <laughs> yeah they won't purposely cut a bad trailer and, and if the film doesn't do well then they're going to blame it on you mm. right so i think you know uh, filmmaking the, the beautiful part about it the stressful part about it is that it encompasses so many different arts forms um condensed into one vehicle that it requires such faith such communication and um really a certain respect as well between uh, the different roles that different people occupy along the chain because people always say oh we love the crew or we love the producer or whatever but you rarely hear people say oh we, we like the marketing team mm. yep and, and you know honestly like yeah there, there are great marketing teams out there and I think the sooner we are able to be less precious and egotistical about the work um, the faster the change is going to come for the best so what do you think is missing if you do think about the the local landscape today, what do you think is missing? Uh, script writers. Okay. Script writers for sure. Yeah. Because um, I feel I have not met, uh, there are script writers here, but I think that they have not matured enough yet for most of them. There are, there are probably some good ones. But with a, with, a, with a great script and everything, you know, it, we have the production capability in Singapore to do something that is, that could challenge the world you know and that's why I no longer consider like getting onto Netflix a good metric of whether you have succeeded or not because Netflix is so much content mm. you know like it's so much content that if you got Netflix nobody may ever see it because it's buried yep. beneath the algorithm as well you're competing and, with other higher high profile yeah, shows and, and, and stuff like and that I don't think no offense but I don't think that it is a, a mark of success I mean it is a mark that you're able to monetize your film but the mark of success is I feel cultural change the, the fact that you are able to 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 be embedded in, in pop culture in either your own territory or another uh, like and you know people always say like I used to believe it as well more that like oh if my film can touch one person good enough you know but now now that I'm a bit older I also feel like that 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 I feel is a bit idealistic and naive why, why is that? As idealistic and naive because it's a it's a form of consolation. I believe it is it is an individual consoling themselves that they that they haven't had the ability to reach a larger critical mass. Mm -hmm. uh, it is a way to stay sane, which is important. <laughs> um, but really, as as artists and things like that, I mean, fine art is so different because you're appealing to such a a, a more narrow, uh, more affluent base. But with film, it is it is a medium of the mass. And, um, you know, even as I assume, as long as you have your audience, sure. Mm. But you can't say your audience is just one. Mm. You know, I think that is um, maybe maybe too kind on yourself la, in, in this case. Yeah. So with regards to your to, to what you mentioned about the lack of script writers, mm. do you think it's uh, it's it's because of the, 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 the demands of the industry that require scriptwriters to write a certain type of script that would be uh, more commercially viable and there isn't much of a demand for something more expressive or more artistic even that people are not perhaps willing to, to try because they don't see a potential commercial future and you get into the practicality of things that it's not viable. Uh, I, I, I agree. I would say that it is uh, more than just that as well and I'll explain. 
Um, I, I agree that money is definitely a big part of it. I mean, if we pay scriptwriters 100k a year, of course, we're going to get some good people <laughs> out there, it, yeah. right? Right. I mean, you know, Singapore is an expensive country. Uh, and, you know, with, with social graces being what they are, there is a certain perception as well, right? Uh, perception that, like, you have to live in a condo, for example, you know? Um, and I feel when it comes to script writing, it is the creating the demand for it but beyond the demand the demand doesn't come so soon be creating the the pay scale that doesn't come so soon because even if you're paying people at that rate it's still gonna be the same old people getting the jobs right because you're not introducing new talent mm. so i believe before we even get to that stage the priority is to train people to train people by bringing in world-class talents to at least have the conversation and the guidance and i think it's worth every penny i think it's worth every penny because what, what can Singapore compete with with the region? Look at the ties. They're so well known for their horror films, their comedies, right? Mm. Even look the at, ads. Even the ads. Yeah, even precisely. Ads, yeah. I mean, and then you look at Indonesia, their population, 280 million. They don't need the rest of Southeast Asia, mm. right? Malaysia, yeah, they have their all, all their own content and everything like the action films and their horror films. Yeah. So really, wh- what is the role of Singapore in surviving regionally as well? And I feel strongly that it is provided, providing above the line talents. Right. Um, providing above the line talents like great directors, great scriptwriters, great producers to be able to work around the region to do co-productions as well, because we will always do local local content. Mm. But we're never going to improve if do we do not cross pollinate in terms of our ideas as well, because look, Thailand grew so fast purely because back in the eighties, seventies, we have all the action movie boom, right? That's where they did Rambo. You have a whole US crew going in there for a year, mm. sharing their experiences with a friendly Thai crew. They're going to know so much more, right? And when you think about it, like a Thai gaffer will cost me, what, maybe four fifty a day? A Thai what, sorry? A Thai gaffer. So that's the guy who manages the lights. Mm. Uh, it's called gaffer because he's an experienced old man, usually. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, gaffer for real. Uh. Yep. And... But when you come to Singapore, you have people who just done TV commercials charging 650 a day without the same kind of experience in working with large set. So these, I, I, feel, I feel great sympathy for the, for the local crew in that like, I think there is a desire to learn, but not necessarily the same degree of opportunities because even when like things like crazy rich Asians come here, look, yeah, they're here only for like set one month. Mm. And then how much are they going to impart? Do they want to impart? Yep. Right? So, more sustainable long-term uh, training, I think, is important. And we need to have a creative... We need to, to unlock creative uh, producing the way that maybe even the Koreans have. Because I was most startled when, you know, Korea, CJ, they actually have a great presence in Vietnam and in Indonesia for more than 10 years. Interesting. So, every time I go to... Uh, Vietnam. Vietnam is an incredible place, by the way. Incredible stuff they're making. But I always eat this like it's strange. I always enjoy this uh pizza run by Japanese come by Japanese businessman in Vietnam. Okay. Sounds like the weirdest thing, right? Okay. And it's called pizza for peace. So it's like if everybody eats pizza, you have world peace. <laughs> and I'm not paid to endorse them, by the way. So you go to Pizza for Peace, yeah. and it is just next to the building, the CJ Entertainment Building. Mm-hmm. And I and it, it is incredible that it has such a presence that now they fund Vietnamese short films for USD 10K. Interesting. Right? So they fund many of them. And these short films have gone on to really be uh, 
to dominate the short film landscape from a Southeast Asian uh, dichotomy. Yep. Uh, um, and it is just just amazing like what our, our how creative our, our the, the rest of the region is. Mm. Because um, of course the cost of living is not so high. So let's say like if I were in Thailand, for example, and I work as a salmon for five days, I I would have the rest. I could I could probably work for ten days a month and have twenty days free, and I could lead a simple lifestyle, and I could survive. Mm. It's hard to do that in Singapore, you know. I mean, you, you think of the thought of cost of living alone, you know, is is really so high, right? Uh, yeah, we're stuck in a hard place, though. Like we 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 look at the neighbors and we look at how they're thriving. I think creatively and whatever the case may be, and we. We're looking from our perspective saying that, hey, we would like that. Mm. But we're kind of stuck in a place where the cost of living seems like it's only going one direction, doesn't go the opposite direction as well. So what can we do? <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, I completely I completely agree with you. And like, I think art definitely is has has been a lot more important to our society and, and recognizably so in the recent history, but it is still never a priority not in the way the Koreans and the Japanese did it, mm. right? Um, and it's because like we're a small country, we require like all these bankers, investors in order to survive to maintain our quality of living. And film is such a high risk, and there's not much territory to 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 for it to be so viable. So you know, it's one of those things. Again, you go back to your social studies textbook, right? Um, what about it? I'm trying my best to get a H one answer. I believe that's a scoring metric, mm-hmm. um, but. I firmly believe that it is we we have to really provide top of the line uh, creative services to the region as well, you know, and that stems as simply as great scriptwriters. Because wouldn't it be awesome if a Singaporean scriptwriter works in Vietnam to do an action series, right? Because they have the stuntmen there, right? You're not going to bring the stuntmen from Vietnam to Singapore. But if you have a Singaporean scriptwriter who can write so well, they can structure something that's emotional with action. Then you work the choreographer there. You're going to have a hit. It's interesting because it sounds so simple, but I've never thought about that before. It sounds like a very simple idea to create for a Singaporean scriptwriter to to write an action series in Vietnam and to film it there and everything. It's a very straightforward, simple answer, but it's not something that I have ever thought of before. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'm going to open this beer first. You know? Um, it's it's one of those things where I think actively we see more and more people doing it now. Mm. Um, so for example, with Ramen Tei, that was actually a Singapore-Japan co-production. Uh, and wh- what that meant that was that we worked with uh, a Japanese production house and a Japanese producer and we got big uh, Japanese talents, Takumi Saito. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know whether you watch manga, but he actually acted as uh, Luffy in the One Piece advertisement, which is incredible. Unfortunately, One Piece is the only manga that I know of that I haven't read, but I know about the, the how legacy popular of it is, how popular so it is. So he acted as in that ad as Luffy, and mm. he's generally a big star, and mm. with Seiko Matsuda as well, who is a big um icon uh, in the 90s as well. Mm. So like it was extremely funny during the Japanese Tokyo press conference where where the Japanese press goes to Mark Lee and say, how was it like working with Seiko Matsuda? And he goes, yeah, best experience, best experience. <laughs> you know, last time I in army, I have a, I have a picture in my locker. Now I see her. Wow, very happy. And you know, and this brings me to another interesting point in that like when when we think of Singlish and local vernacular, we always think of it as not exportable. Mm. Right? And but I don't but I think that there is a genuine interest in culture. 
So when we screened Ramen Tea, which is a Singapore-Japan co-production in Berlin, back then when they had a culinary section, so it's damn awesome, right? You and this circus tent and they screened the film and, and, and this Michelin star chef will interpret your film and, and turn it oh, into dishes. Oh, interesting. So it's like... Um, it's it's like cinema of a different form, right? Yep, yep. But it's still communal. Yep. And uh, people love Mark Lee. People love Mark Lee for how authentic he felt. And really, when you're creating these images, there's so much um, construction to it that you are genuinely trying to find something authentic to mm. it. And I believe the same is with all art forms, even with design and everything, you're trying to find something authentic. So even, even minimalist design is authentic because the philosophy is... It should be as simple as possible to to, to distill it to to the core of it, mm. right? Uh, and with other kind of of, of design, music art, uh, there is a very clear uh, philosophy to it as well. So I think for uh, our local work is a matter of like what what is our our philosophy as well, and how do we work with people around the region to do something um, more interesting? And actually, a strange thing is that actually Singaporean producers, unbeknownst have actually been doing extremely well on the global circuit. So I'll give yep. you an example. Um, sorry if I'm rambling. No, no, you're not. Um, but, uh, there's this guy called Lai Weitz, yeah. Okay. Uh, he's been in the festival circuit for a long, long time. Soft-spoken, very sweet guy. Has a brother as well who also works in the industry. Um, Weitz, yeah, produced a film called Taste Okay. Uh, in uh, Vietnam. So it is a film about a failed Nigerian soccer player who develops a love for exotic foods with the aunties in his neighborhood. <laughs> That's right? interesting, yeah. But it's not a zany type of film. It's done in a very poetic sort of way because it's silent. You see this guy walking and, you know, you see an African guy walking in a Vietnamese community. That's odd already, yep. right? It's about this juxtapositions to make it interesting. So it won in Berlin. It actually won in Berlin. And this Wei Jia guy, fantastic. So happy for him. Uh, recently, he co-produced an Indonesian film called... Um, Vengeance is mine. All others pay cash. Great title, Interesting. right? Yeah, yeah. Great title. I love yeah. it. It's basically about it's an action because you know Indonesia is known for action films mm. now with the raid and all of that, right? Headshot and uh, the night comes for us. And with Indonesian, uh, he, he this is an Indonesian film that skewers the action genre because it's about a fighter who is important. Interesting. It's about a fighter who is important. Yep. And it actually won the Golden Leopard in uh, Locarno. So for the first time in maybe even like 10, 20 years, we have two Southeast Asian winners of a major Ivy League festival. Mm. Um, but, you know, and there's, there are other producers like Sun who's doing a film with um, with with Anthony Chen Wet Seasons, which won, I, as I mentioned, and also Jeremy Chua, who was actually featured, he actually co-produced Bangladesh's first film to get into Cannes Film Festival. I mean, you know, it's one of those things that is so easy to fly by, but, you know, there is some degree of social work being done when you produce another country yep, as a yep, first yep. entry into a yep. major film festival. So yep. yeah, very, very happy to have the opportunity to have, have these producers as my contemporaries. Is there a reason why the success isn't as known or even or is even as celebrated over here? Because before you even mentioned who who they are, whatever they've done, I, I would have never known that uh, the 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 our, our, the the Singapore born producers are so uh, I think pervasive with regards to the industry that they're being hired by other countries to produce films for them. Actually, Singaporean producers are brand. We're extremely popular in the region, to be honest. 
Um, yep. I would I would say the main reason also is because of our, our press, mm. right? And it is it is a requirement of the press to really push these kind of stories out, um, because the idea of the uh, the idea of a newspaper any sort of journalism is to focus on the important news of the day, right? Hopefully, but uh, our important news of the day, according to some quarters, is like which road the otters cross or which fish at the condo they <laughs> ate, right? Uh, the alternative would be what happened to the Korean star? Is mm. he in jail? Mm. Did he rape somebody? Mm. And, you know, I, I understand. I understand it completely because, you know, there are financial pressures and, and these are kind of news. I mean, dude, I used to love the new paper, man, mm. because it's really the pulse of the people, yep. right? Yep. You know, when you always read this scandalous story, you don't know who raped who, <laughs> la, yeah, yeah. some sort of three-generation incest story. I mean, it's only, the new paper, yeah. only the new paper will break these kind of stories. Yep. And they had such a robust soccer section with the illustrations at the back as well, which I loved. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think it is this... Um, uh, a widespread thing. I think that's why it's so important for me to try to talk to people from different industries so that, you know, I feel like there is a certain degree of uh, separation between industries yep. in Singapore. Like, not enough conversations because we don't have that sort of same communal spaces. Um, and it is only through these conversations that you have something new, right? Because, apologies, something you see, you may not have seen something, but it could, it could trigger a new idea. Mm. And some people focus so much on music, they can share with you something which you have been thinking about, mm. but you've never actually heard. Yep. And same thing with film. It It is these ideas that I feel are actually more beneficial toward uh, creative growth than uh, anything else. But often, I think many people don't have the time or energy because oh, very difficult to really work hard to make a living, right? Yep. You know, when you work for a production house doing TV commercials, you're putting what? 16 hour days yep. you may have leeway of what time you wake up but this doesn't change the fact you're pulling 16 hour days by the end of the day you, you really don't want to talk about anything creative or work yeah, yeah. You, you you burn out you mm. know and, and that's why like having the space and time to think about it and like having a space to 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 have these conversations is, is extremely important you know like the idea of like community or like coffee shops for, for communication and discussion as well and that's why like I was pretty sad when, you know, White Label closed down. Mm. It was, I believe that kind of space for, for especially musicians. Yep. And I, and, and I don't know as much about the music industry, but I would say that from what I've heard, I think there's a genuine renaissance going on in, in the, the range and the quality of music being produced, you mm. know, really, really fantastic. I mean, you know, you have, I, I don't know who, which local stuff you listen to, um, but, you know, people like Sob, Subsonic Eye, I think Kribo, uh, unknown radicals. I think all this. Even have you heard CB Docs? They sound very familiar. Yo. So so CB Docs is great. I mean, they have this epic song called I think Johnny Lau, mm-hmm. and basically <laughs> it's this guy they don't like called Johnny Lau. So yeah. one day I would love to meet this guy called Johnny Lau because the whole track just goes like, "You're an asshole, Johnny Lau. Fuck you, Johnny Lau. Fuck you, Johnny Lau." <laughs> and you know, it is that, you know, you, you when you listen to work like that, you can tell that there's no agenda. It's not like I'm trying to get to festivals. Like, <laughs> it's just pure emotional expression. And I feel like in such a manufactured country as Singapore, that it is no longer as manufactured because people are actively searching for identity by trying to find organic forms of expression. And, and I love to champion that in whatever way I can. Yeah. I'm just curious to know your thoughts on this. Do you think like uh, creatively in, in Singapore, if we talk about the creative culture in Singapore wholly, do you think that this is a crisis of identity 
the 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 reason why I ask this question is because I think for the longest time the the types of things that we see and the types of things that we like it's oftentimes imported, which led to the assumption that I guess Singapore in itself has no culture, even though we might have like we have a uh, uh, great hawker culture food and stuff like that, but we don't treasure them in a sense that we're always looking outwardly as to what is what is cool, what is hip, and whatever's trending. So I'm just curious to know what what your thoughts are. Like, do you think in 2021 and moving forward, let's say if we were to conceptualize what perhaps the next five or even ten years will look like, do you think it's it will be important for us to solve perhaps this crisis of identity and to to inform us on what steps to take moving forward? I'll, I'll answer this question first by starting off with a story. There's this very famous producer called uh, Lord David Putnam. Oh, it's a fantastic name. Uh, yeah, great name, right? Yeah. It sounds like a badass. Yeah. And Lord David Putnam uh, actually produced Chariots of Fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe the duel um, with Jeremy Irons. I mean, he's a legendary producer. He's in, I think, the upper house. He's actually uh, like a member of parliament in the upper wow. house of, 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 of the States. LaSalle Film School. So the film school is actually called Putnam School of Film. Wow, after okay. Him. okay. So, I mean, this guy is really a lot, lah, you know? Um. But he came to Singapore many years ago. I think he still comes. But he said, he watched his short films and films and he said, why are all Singaporean films so depressing? Right? And really for me, I think it was, you know, as a child, you're trying to develop a voice. Mm. You're trying to figure out what to say, how to say it and, and how best to fit into the uh, social setting of group. I think it's the same thing with film. I think that we have come a huge long way in an extremely short amount of time to be where we are at. At the beginning, there were so many filmmakers trying to figure out what Singapore is and how to say it with the constraints of um, constraints of uh, censorship, right? Mm. And then, of course, you have um, Eric Koo coming up first with Me Pop Man, which is incredible, right? I mean, 95, yep. film about necrophilia. Mm. It's insane. And then you have Roizen Tan talking about gangsters, you know, in 15, right? With that scene where the guy has to swallow the, the condom full of pills. I mean, it's the kind of thing you all know, right? Mm. You sort of heard this like stories of, mm. but to see it on screen and to realize it with characters that, that inhabit that sort of lifestyle, it, it really forms like identity. And I think through the shoulders of our, of our so-called film forefathers, there is greater courage to pioneer new identities as well. And I see that so much in the new generation of filmmakers being very confident and assertive with their voice. Um, I feel that the stronger filmmakers are ones who are able to manage that in accordance to uh, trying to communicate to a broader audience. Um, But I would say that this reputation is slowly being shed and it requires us to go overseas to succeed before coming back, then so be it. You know, but it is an ongoing conversation and I don't think the fact that we go overseas before coming back means any less. Mm. It just means that, look, we, we don't consume so much of our local content because truth to be told, I mean, you know also, la, we w- if you look at local content, so much of it is really poor as well. Mm-hmm. We always wonder, why can't we do this? Why can't we be like Korea? You know, And Ooh. the simple fact is that we can't be like Korea because we don't sacrifice enough we don't sacrifice enough in terms of, uh, maybe sacrifice is the wrong word. We don't commit enough. We don't commit enough at a younger stage to exploring life, exploring art. I mean, as a child, how many Singaporean children have to go through tuition? 
their after school activity is tuition. If your after school activity is like art drawing, your perspective is so much broader, even doing sports. And your identity is skewed because it is manufactured due to a bell curve. <laughs> right? And famous bell curve. Bell yeah. curve, you know? Yeah. It's, when, when I think of the bell curve, I always imagine a Pavlovian response, right? Right, the idea of the bell ringing yep. and you responding to it in terms of grades, but I feel so strongly that the younger generation are so aware, and I wouldn't say woke, because I feel woke is such a bad word, um, purely because it's been so abused, right? Abuse is the right word. Yeah. Um, but I think it's so exciting to see what people come up with because I see so many exciting musicians. I see new filmmakers uh, doing stuff that's really quite interesting as well. Mm -hmm. I think it's just, you know, how do you make that sustainable as well? Because movies are going to fade. They really are. And um, TV series, shorter form content is, is going to take, take, take the way. And, mm. you know, with this shorter form content, you can have such great um, identity to it as well, right? I mean, like, as simple as like when Ben King did the comedic spot where he's moving across a mirror and it's like how many months he spent in Singapore. So okay. he starts off coming off with like, hi, I'm Ben King. Nice to meet you. And then he goes like, hi, I'm Ben King. Nice to meet you. And then he goes more and more colloquial with it. And I think people respond to this kind of content as well because it is it is that inside joke with all of us, right? Yep. It is the inside joke beyond beyond the jokes of like Hing Sui Kiat and all of them. Mm. Poor guy, to be honest. <laughs> poor guy. <laughs> He's a really poor guy. Uh have so much respect for him. Yep. Poor guy. Yeah. Um and beyond beyond all of them as well, I think it's just a matter of like, do we have the courage to support what we don't necessarily understand? You know, because if we if in my mind accelerating growth, the only way to do it is by embracing the unknown. Mm. Right? But you're never gonna see our local press do kind of thing because it's as simple as like when broadcasters ask the question, it's always what will work for the audience? And that's a problem which is already you've already failed when you ask that question. Why is that? You're filled with when you ask that question because you're thinking about the past. You're thinking about what has worked before. You're thinking about audience response, right? Whereas the Americans definitely have it right. The Americans are what will work, what will be interesting. It's progressive. That's why their identity is consistently evolving. Whereas with so many like local stuff that we see is either inspired by like 90s Hong Kong, mm. or, like a very Taiwanese, like slow burn kind of sensibility, yep. like Edward Yang, or, like Ho Sao Xian, like Chai Ming Liang. And um, you know, these are great artists, no doubt. But we as an emerging creative, I always feel like it is okay to emulate. But at some point, you need to move past emulation to pioneer. And that requires risk. Mm. You know, and if you can't risk it, then there's less of a point, a less of a poignancy to what you're saying. Oh, there's so many paths we can take with this conversation. <laughs> um, I want to touch uh, on what you- And I was worried that we wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to converse before this, actually. I think, I think the beer really helped. <laughs> I want to talk about- um, you mentioned the start of this conversation about sacrifice, about being in the in industry, and you mentioned about what we lack is it could be commitment. I want you to talk a little bit more about that as to what have you sacrificed to to get to this point? Like, what do people not see uh behind the scenes of a film? Because people can, yeah, they go to a cinema or they go to like let's say a projector and they watch let's say a local film or whatever the case, and yeah, it's pretty pictures and everything. But what do they not see? I would say two things. One is 
the time in the sense that, you know, I can never have a a, a pop pop uh, a regular sort of schedule because I, I'm I'm always uh ready to respond to things. So like I work weekends as well, you know, like to me now that doesn't feel like a big deal at all. Mm. And um you you always you always feel very responsible over so many things that forming new connections or anything is very difficult as well. So for me it's a matter of like I keep working in this industry and spend so much time working and thinking about all these like theoretical stuff like how can it be better and all this kind of questions you've asked. But it brings me back to a fundamental question, which is how am I still functioning as a normal human being, as a normal Singaporean? Like is how can I lead a normal life as well? And this disconnect between what is normal, despite trying to portray it, it's a big oxymoronic kind of like uh, dilemma I find myself in. Um, but I think what helps a lot is having close friends and listening to, to what they have to say and never be too caught up. That's why I value my friends in, outside the film industry so mm. much. Uh, really very much, even though like I, I can be very moody at times and things <laughs> like that, you know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because sometimes I'm late to meet them and then they're like, hey, bitch, why are you so late? Yeah, right? that's, that's common. Which is yeah. fair, right? Yeah. Which is fair, right? Yeah. And then I'm like, oh, you know, sorry lah, right? <laughs> sorry lah, you know, got this meeting lah, drag lah, you know, it's my life at the line. And past a certain point, the excuse kind of gets worn out, right? It gets a bit tired, right? But it's true, you know? Yeah. And 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 this is my fault. This is a choice that I make a decision between spending my time and taking my friend for granted in mm. terms of the time they've offered me. Mm. And to say that, okay lah, he'll understand if I'm a bit late. And it, it really breaks my heart every time I'm, I I'm, I'm in, find myself in that kind of situation which I find myself frequently in purely because I have so many things I have to juggle as well in terms of like expectation and responsibility and you know I don't know whether I'm making the right decision all the time but I would say that I've been very consistent with my philosophy towards it and, and you know sometimes when you think about your own life is you know you can never be certain where you're going there is no certainty in this No world. certainty, unless you are a government scholar, you are an SAF, and they tell you you're going to be minister in the future. I think it also depends on your 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 framework of the word certainty as well. True. That's yeah. a good point. Yeah. I think the idea of... It's so interesting, right? Because filmmaking is so transient that the idea of certainty is such a such an interesting uh, thing to consider. Um, I, I guess, what's, what's the other thing that they don't see? Um, that... I think many people don't see that um, I need to make tough decisions as well. As a producer. As a producer. Because, uh, you know, everybody always has this uh, viewpoint that producers are like just money-minded, like assholes or like, you know, that, and, and that's obviously a part of it, right? Because you are managing the money. No matter what, you can't please everybody and someone's going to make this comment. When the money runs out, it stops. You, you can't continue, right? Filming. You find more money. <laughs> okay. So it's either two. Or, so so it's a binary situation. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay. So either you stop, or you find more money. Okay. And um, I've been in situations like that, extremely stressful and uncomfortable. Extremely stressful and uncomfortable. And planning beforehand is so important as well. But I would say that um, over time, uh, you you learn how to accept these aspects of these sacrifices that you have made, and to to. You have the faith that you're you're doing it for the greater good, and and you you, you know the greater good, not to use it like hot fast. Have you seen that film <laughs> Hot Fast? They always say that for the greater good, mm. and it's it's such a sinister term, right? Yeah, because it, it, it means a lot of the minority, right? Yep. 
And but you, you have to look at a big picture, but never forget the every man, you know. That's why like I it means so much for me every time to go on the set and talk to the PS to hear what they want to do and why they want to do it. Because it's like everybody has a dream, you know, when they're on set with what they want to do. Mm-hmm. And it you know, you don't need to be you don't need to add on to the brutality because most people won't realize their dream of being able to to continue to work in the film industry or to assert their creative identity or whatever. And, you know, the fact that they are even in the industry doing it, uh, you must remember, uh, these are people who at least try, you know. Mm, fair. They, if, you, if you consider it to be a Matrix framework, these are people who chose the, chose the red pill, right? I believe so. Yeah, I hope so. so not You're the film buff, not me. <laughs> I know, I know. But they make um, a conscious decision to remain? They make, a, they make a decision to become a PA to take your coffee order and, mm-hmm. and like really make things work. And I think it's so important to respect the people around you. I think for all the sacrifices we make in our industries, it's important to remember that like as important as art is to us, yeah, it's true, lah, dude. What's more important, artist is a doctor, doctor, lah, of course. <laughs> In Apocalypse, the doctor is more important. <laughs> yeah. Unless doctor no medicine, then stories will help. <laughs> la. But the artist can paint signs. So the second part of the question is on the word commitment. I think commitment is a very interesting word because mm. it's not something you can teach. Okay. It's not something that can be even inherited or even genetic, I assume, I think. It's, it's, it's something you realize on your own. So the, the question to that is, I want to know what, what keeps you motivated to continue what you're doing? Because um, it is in part a commitment to a certain idea or a certain vision that you have. So just what keeps you motivated? Wow. I was that, I mean, I do feel consistently motivated and, and how I feel consistently motivated. It's two parts. Like one, one big part of it is the fact that, that I feel responsible for so many people as well. Like the people who believe in me and my collaborators who work with me. So their faith keeps me motivated and, and to be curious to try. The second point is just pure guts. You you have, look, all directors are going to have some degree of ego, whether they show it or not. You have to have ego to be a creative because yep. there's no such thing as an original piece of work by consensus. Because when you, there's so many minute decisions coming down to making of it that often any dilution could really spoil it. And, that that's why I see the director's role in is that like your director does not necessarily actually need to be the most inventive person per se, but your director has to have the best curation of ideas to hit a com- a consistent tone and vision, and 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 as a director that's what you try to encourage your team to do because you have your ideas of how it should work, but when you listen to your team are you are able to guide them to a vision, it the the collaborative nature of it means that people are making decisions for you to your direction as well. Mm. And, and that's so powerful. And that's why, uh, I mean, biggest example is like NDP. La. You know, as simple as like, uh, when we when we said like, oh, animate, I mean, animate the, animate the, we are thinking of the Kalang Wave. This is what we want to do on the Golden Mall Complex, right? We think of Kalang Wave would be great, right? And then they said, oh, can we, can we make it multiracial? It's like, oh, yeah, of course, make it multiracial. That was so cool, right? Mm. And, and when you encourage people like that, then they start to move on the tangent and you just, for sort of like provide some sort of guidelines and then when they come up with, with ideas and everything as long as you're clear and specific enough you, you'll find something even more interesting Mm-mm. and and they feel proud of it you feel proud of it it feels genuine right yep. because it's not a creative collaboration if you're telling someone what to do all the Mm-mm. entire time as well so how do you promote this so 
if I was to imagine your work, you need to work with people that you're familiar with, hopefully, like uh, that there's this synergy be- between uh, yeah. the, the working relationship. So how, how, how do you cultivate that? Because there are deadlines and there is a budget. And let's say if you're working for a client, there's, there's client expectations in it, but you still want to foster this particular uh, sense of uh, creative ideation that you are aware of the fact that you might not have the, the, the best ideas, but perhaps the, 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 the person you're working with can contribute something. So how do you keep that thing alive in the midst of, frankly, like a war zone? It's like you have, things, you have so many uh, things to, 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 to balance out. Yeah. You, you know, in the army, when you're a sergeant, were you, what, what were you? What rank were you? What's a stall man? Oh, but lovely, man. Yeah. Honestly, I envy that life. But no, I was I was a sergeant and you know when they have the three chevrons, right? Mm-hmm. They always say that the chevrons are there to tank the shit. <laughs> I have heard that before, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this is what identity is, right? Yep. The fact that we can share this joke. Um, but yeah, the three is the same thing for for for, for doing this kind of work. You, you need to be able to absorb and to just not take things personally when people are upset with you or they have a different opinion. And then secondly, to cultivate that that trust and everything. Okay, first stop for me, I hate to say this, alcohol. Like spending time like drinking and talking to someone and talking deeply about something to understand why they're doing this, why what they hope to achieve and how they think. Then, you know, you can't force somebody to do something that they, they're not organically inclined to mm. do. So you need to decide, la, do you work with their style and can you integrate it to what you're doing? And you're, it's, it's, it's like a Rubik's Cube with so many variables. And the second thing I think is honest communication. So whenever I talk to any of any creative, I always say like, I think this is not good enough. Uh, like, yeah, I, I don't see this working. This is what may work better. And then being very honest and upfront rather than just dancing around it in like a very Asian kind of way yeah. is, is, is better. <laughs> I think people appreciate it, especially in Singapore, because when I work around the region, they always say Singaporeans, wow, you're very blunt and direct mm. because we're always straight mm. to the point, right? Yep, we yep, don't do yep. that. Like, we don't waste time. Hey, uh, bro, yeah, come yeah. and makan. We yep. eat the good rendang before we start yep. talking. It's always like, come in. Hey, let's get it out of the way first. Then we can enjoy dinner. Yep. The dynamic is very different. Yeah. So that's practically practicality working in our favor in in part yes and that's why i go back to like the fact that like above the line talent in singapore will be highly valued because we are in most cases stronger communicators more tolerant communicators than than, than our peers and that's only going to be a short-term advantage because as these regions grow they're going to catch up before we move on one last question on this is how how do you imagine the future singapore creative to look like well, there's no obviously no one set type of creative lah. Of course not. Yeah. But I would say that uh, I'm excited to see modern Singaporean creatives that pioneer a language. A language? A language. That means to say like, how do we... For, okay, I, I refer specifically to film because I can't say of course, other industries. Yeah, yeah. But a language in the sense that like, what if I cut two things together to create new meaning? Because film is made different because of the edit. You, you are curating consci- consistently what image you show next, what you show and what you don't show. So when, 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 with, the, with the next generation Singaporean creative, I'll be so excited to see these creatives really do work that challenges, uh, uh, shapes uh, something even more provocative that we, we can't, haven't seen before. Uh, and to create, when I say new language, I would say like, something that makes sense. Okay. I can't really give you an example, mm-hmm. but for example, like 
a very basic example would be like if I cut an egg cracking and I show you rendang after that, you get the sense of local food, but you also actually get the sense of multiculturalism, mm. right? Because you understand what it represents as well, that they're two different food cultures. But how do you translate that to a global audience where they do not even have these modes of understanding to begin with? And I believe that 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 the next level creative or next generation creative may be able to uh, bridge this gap through new forms. I mean, so many of the contemporary stuff is very collage-based, you know, like uh, video work and everything. I, I always feel it's very collage-based, uh, very inspired by, by the West as well, you know. But, um, you know, look, this whole idea of identity, because this, this question ultimately distilled, comes mm. back to identity as well. Um, at the end of the day, even if you have not so-called made it big time as a Singaporean creative, I think you still have an identity. Mm. You know, as long as you're not uh, purely appropriating a plagiarizing old work and you're adding to that conversation, there is identity. And I feel like maybe the way to progress past these questions of identity is to accept that no matter what you do, you still have an identity. Yeah. Because maybe it's the idea of identity that's holding us back because we become so cognizant of every decision we make because it has to relate back to identity. But if if I just am, if I just create work in response to how I feel, maybe something more organic and interesting could emerge out of it as well. Mm, because the bar is so high or the assumed bar is of a certain level that you have to hit certain metrics, you have to win certain awards before you can call yourself that. It could be either holding people in the industry back or even preventing people from, from, from even getting into it. Well, that's a great point, Kevin. I, I, I You know, I think that hits the completely just summarizes it because I find many Singaporean creatives nowadays when they make films, they make it like, oh, I want to get into festival because that's your metric that you're, you're trained mm-hmm. to, to, to respond to, right? Like when you apply for an IMDA grant, it is, the question is, what what is your festival plan? What is your distribution plan? But the idea of creating something and just entertaining is lost. That's and, 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 yeah. and, and I think that there are people who are actively trying to do it because the mode of communication distribution is so much more um, accessible than it was before. And again, going back to TikTok, right? Before you need to make a film, you need to make a 90 minute film, you need to raise like half a million dollars in order to put out content. But now you see the distillation of these ideas in a five to 10 second video on TikTok, right? And it really summarizes it because it no longer is about the immersion with TikTok. Mm. It is about the imagination because you so bluntly put across and then you 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 digest the information and the answer after that, right? Yep. Like they always put like some music and there's always a simple twist. Yep. In most cases yep, that I've yep. seen. Whereas like, then the role of, 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 of film in relation to identity is like, you, you need so many more ideas. Uh, uh, and, and, and I guess what is lost in the fire when, when, when we have this mode of consumption in terms of identity, I feel is that there is less patience to try to make new synaptic connections. Mm-hmm. And in some sense, it is a bit illiterate lah. And that's why I feel like the role of like film festivals and critics is really to provide new modes of understanding uh, of, of filmmaking and, and stories so that when you, it's like literature, right? When you read a book or oh, red flower must mean love, mm, right? Mm, mm. There actually, actually these semantics and semiotics that play very heavily. Yep. And if we, if we don't pressurize people, uh, don't appear intellectually elitist, we invite people in to have that conversation of what they have noticed rather than an assessment of, of their current level of, of, of film literacy as well, in terms of art as well, you know? Like what makes good music is whether you like it or not, right? 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Seriously, it's, yep. about, it's simply the matter whether you like it or not, right? It's good to your ears or whatever. Mm, mm. But so often, I find there's, there is a very judgmental and less self-confident kind of uh, attitude towards uh, how we talk about it with other people in the sphere because it almost seems like you need to have possess a certain uh, base standard of knowledge in order to engage uh, robustly, right? But, you know, even if your conversation isn't as robust, there's great value in it because mm. you, you are seeing somebody grow mm. and it is so lovely to see somebody discover more of themselves as they're watching more things listening to new things as well to, to see that new feeling it's as though you are there with a person when they're losing their virginity mm. you know and, and I think I, I really sh- love it when I, I meet creatives who are so all embracing despite what they do to not say like oh your opinion is wrong or this guy's stupid you know it's really about welcoming people to have this like communal party like atmosphere and it means so much more, especially in this socially distant time mm. when we're trying to surround ourselves around content that is able to be sort of universal. But the universality is obviously a misnomer as well. Yep. Because we're in Singapore, la, you know? <laughs> right? Nothing is really universal here. The only universal thing is that money is important. Uh. Taxes. Uh. <laughs> Precisely. Precisely. But it's interesting because like like conversations or even productive conversations of let's say accepting critique and all I can imagine it won't be it won't fare too well if the creator is too heavily invested in the title of an artist or in the title of let's say a film creator like the identity is tied too closely hence therefore there is a big I guess like an emotional or even a mental investment to to place the creation in a higher pedestal because it informs the identity of the creator yeah I understand what you mean. Yeah. It's a brand, right? Mm. If you watch like a Quentin Tarantino film, you expect a certain type of self-aware referencing pop culture kind of film as well. But I think, you know, people are, people have so much going on in their lives. Too much. We, we, we got to create easier modes of, of understanding uh, barriers and to lower the barriers of entry. And I think that's why, like no matter how intelligent or culturally aware you are, you should always like invite people rather than push them away, you know, because there is a trickle down effect and it is, you know, it only does our creative industry a disservice. Um, so I would say that obviously, you know, when some creatives, they, they they change their branding and do something completely fresh, it's always exciting, right? But you must have enough of a critical mass for people to even follow these trends. Mm. And dude, you know, when you think about local filmmakers and trends, how many people care? No. Or not, not even aware of it, yeah. Yeah, no, nobody knows. So it's like, don't even tackle the issue <laughs> before we have tackled the issue of like, uh, appreciation of local films and work, yeah. So, so I think one of the more interesting uh, phenomenon, I think over the last decade or so, it's the rise of let's say Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, even. So, from your perspective, because I, I think the rise of these platforms kind of run in parallel with your journey as a as a film uh, filmmaker and as a producer. So, I think the first question to this is: Do you think these platforms they inform or? they kind of guide and shape the type of content that's being produced. Uh, definitely. I think that there are, there are different audiences for each of these different uh, mediums as well. I mean, now Facebook is like old, old person's medium, right? <laughs> and it's only like, what, five years? Yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah. The expiration date faster. La. So fast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think for me, I just feel like, uh, actually I got on the social media game really late. Like I only started using Instagram 2018 okay. actively. Uh, Facebook, I'm always on it, but I've never posted really. 
Um, was there a reason for the lateness? Was there like a... What was your thought process? Like? I think I was always very resistant to it purely because I saw it as a distraction. Like, if I spend more time on it, that um, I wouldn't be able to focus on like storytelling and the craft of it as much because, you know, it's so addictive, right? Mm. I mean, once I downloaded TikTok, wow, dude, I, I keep watching this like a Middle Eastern uh, dwarf guy called Abdul and, and the way he pronounces hamburger. <laughs> it's, it's that kind of thing, right? It's so catchy. It's so easy to delve into. And there's a certain power to it as well. But I think for me, it's um, just trying to have the discipline to uh, focus on the craftsmanship of it because it's so easy to have one hit video. Well, not that easy, but it is possible to have that one hit short form video. But uh, to, to create uh, longer films, I guess, not to say that one platform, is, that, that, that is my personal mode of communication with the concepts that I would love to share mm. to a broader audience as well. Yeah. Do you see, let's say, the platform of YouTube? And I think YouTube has really been interesting. I think over the past, like since its inception, I think back in 2005 to even right to now, do you think, do, do you see it as a viable means to publish uh, videos with al alternative ideas that perhaps might not get the, the commercial backing or something? Of like, course. Look, I think it's great because now we have an alternative platform. Before you only have TV and, and films agitated by like a certain executive group of like yep. commissioners, right? Yep. But with, with YouTube and with Facebook and Instagram, it is it is egalitarian, it's democracy. And with with that kind of platform as well, you know, like I love I do I I love those kind of like Olympic videos where you see like uh the 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 gymnasts and their, their records and, and what makes a gymnast, why do they do this move, you know? You don't need to watch a full episode. It's like, like an analysis. Minutes, uh, uh like sixty minutes on okay. it. You know, you, you, you can digest it in a 10, a five minute platform as well. And we no longer think about duration when we think about content, mm. right? We only think about con duration when we think about more traditional uh, platforms. But with YouTube, you know, anybody can create great stuff. And I've seen so many great stuff done for so little as well, because it's really, again, it's the distillation of like, what is the core of what you're trying to communicate? And like, don't waste my time, you know, quite Singaporean. Don't waste my time, get the information out. That's why people love Nas Daily until recently. Yep, right? until the controversy. <laughs> yeah. So, so same thing, la, same thing. Do you consume content on YouTube? Oh, of course, of course. I, I love it. La. I mean, honestly, YouTube has been a great education for me as well when it comes to film because there's so many like, uh, these kind of like uh, breakdowns, like every frame of painting is quite mm, well known. Fantastic. And, and they make it so easy and accessible that I, I really appreciate these kind of like uh, cinematic shorthands in its ability to invite people in again mm. to, to what I was saying. Um, but yeah, YouTube, YouTube, I love it, man. I mean, I've seen amazing music videos on, on YouTube. It really expanded my horizon. I mean, the best is when you're drinking with friends and lying down on the couch and you're just sharing the other music videos you like, right? And I remember very vividly the first time I was like quite drunk and like my friend said, hey, you got to check out this music video. And then she showed me Montero by Lil Nas X. Oh, fantastic. Have you seen that? I've seen, I, I, I might have seen, but I don't really remember much of okay, it. Okay, I don't know. Maybe you censor this, like, I don't know. But it, it features like the musician Lil Nas mm -hmm. X, like lap dancing the devil mm -hmm. before assassinating the devil mm -hmm. in the final moments after going through like uh, 3KM pole dance down in his underwear. So it's like really like blasphemous. It's like a trip. Uh. <laughs> it's a blasphemous. I mean, it starts off with the motif of Adam and Eve, right? Mm. But you know, genuinely, I feel it's, it is a legitimate form of art. Maybe not one that will do, but um, I mean, fantastic, right? Because sharing these things, you, you understand what is interesting or what is new that 
your algorithm may not show up. And I think the algorithm itself is so sinister, right? Because it creates this perpetual cycle without the the avenue for exploration. Mm. In the past, like when you change TV channels, like, oh, okay, you're watching something new, right? On a different channel if you're bored or whatever. And you're surfing, you're actually surfing and it's about riding the wave, right? Yep. You're riding the wave of what content's interesting. But you have much less of it, even though you have the choice of it because you're, you're, you are conditioned to certain algorithms that, that lead you to certain content uh, outcomes as well. So there's been a lot of talk recently about how uh, content on these particular platforms that we talked about, such as YouTube and Instagram, are driven a lot by the algorithm. It isn't an individual behind the scenes curating it, but it's all left solely to the algorithm. Do you think that this will inform the type of content that will want to be shared? Because people are, let's say, with there the, the are different purposes as to why someone want to upload content, be it for fame, be it for a certain measure of success, be it for a certain measure of cloud, and mm. et cetera, et cetera. Do mm. you think that people will try to, to game the algorithm in that sense? Case in point, like how Spotify mm. has kind of disrupted the whole music industry before. Like, mm. there's no need for CDs anymore. But people are actively trying to game uh, the Spotify algorithm to yeah. get on, I think, certain playlists. They were saying that you, you, you get more hits and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, I think all of it is very commercially driven as well. I mean, you know, you, you don't get a YouTube ad if they haven't paid the money mm. beforehand. Um, Do you watch the ads? I'm just curious to know. Rarely, la. Okay. Rarely, to okay. be honest, rarely, la. I mean, most of the time it's the proper lim- property limb brothers. <laughs> okay. Right? Yeah. I, I watch those sometimes because I find it very amusing and entertaining. Like, like uh, how, how can you being in the ad, watch the ad and not feel like it's a bit cheesy, right? Yeah. You know, and then somehow the, the, the mode of dressing and everything is uh, feels a little bit like posturing rather than something that is natural to who they are. Um, and and that's, that's another interesting point uh, because I think so much of, we, we try to emulate being such a small country as well. But going back to the question of the algorithm and whether it, whether it shapes uh, us as much. Um, I think definitely because it's as simple as like most people in Singapore, I imagine would at the end of the day go on Netflix and they're only going to find content on Netflix. Like watch the top 10 or yeah, something. Yeah, whatever. Uh, th- whatever the algorithm may suggest as well, they'll spend time finding it, but you're going to settle something on Netflix. Mm-hmm. You're not going to find something you really want to watch because mm-hmm. you're not aware mm-hmm. and you don't have the time to do the research. So it, it, it really narrows your perspectives uh, more so than before, even though you have more content to watch, which is the irony of it. Yep. And, you know, in, in, in trying to, again, it goes back to the whole idea of local content creation as well. It's about feeling what has been before. Like, you like action films? I'm just going to show you action films because you watch this, you yep. may like this. Yep. And, you know, it, it does not give much room for a person to change it further instills like comfort comfort or maybe sort of like a very I don't know, that's a static mm. you're very static in, in terms of your exposure but you know there have been times I'm sure Kevin in your life as well I'd love to hear it like a, a film that means so much to you they have seen and you just feel like this is it this changed my life you know everybody has that film like something that immediately comes up whether it's stupid you know like I love Zoolander by the way I think it's a great piece of cinema 
Uh, and, and that's why I feel like it should be non-discriminatory. It's about like understanding why people like what they like and how it's connected to them, mm. you know? But I'm very curious to know what what, what film connected to, to you, with you. Nothing comes to mind when I think of film mm. because I don't watch that much film. So mm. it's, it's funny because I don't watch the film per se, mm. but let's say if I'm interested in an idea, I would watch the, the post analysis of it on YouTube mm. and there's many. And it's interesting because for each creator, so let's say a film like Hereditary, mm. for example, mm. for each creator to do, let's say like a 30 minute or even an hour and I, I love those, I'll watch it and they have a different viewpoint. Mm. maybe like 60% is the same because it's the same film but mm. that 40% is different so I'll watch let's say 5 of those or 10 of those as much as I can find and if I'm really interested after that I will go and read up or watch the the director talking about it yeah but I won't watch the film right right that's interesting I actually know of people with, with slightly different uh, kind of viewing habits as well like they watch like first 10 minutes find it very interesting then go on Wikipedia <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. right they go on Wikipedia must know the ending how yeah. the books end Game of Thrones I think that's a yeah, big yeah. thing as well yeah. I think it, you know because films are very time consuming things mm. as well that you, you, you take the two hours out to watch it as opposed to a piece of music, right? That's a three minutes commitment. Yep. And you can still do other things on top of that. That's why when you listen to albums, that's so liberating. Yep. Whereas film, it demands your attention, right? Um. So, but I I, I can't help but wonder whether um, when, it, when it comes to watching different kinds of, 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 of things as well, exploring this kind of like... Uh, world it is it is always most exciting when a friend introduces you to a new type of film that you haven't seen before and and i mm. would recommend you a film sure i would recommend every film now on this podcast so what i recommend it? it to everybody else as well and it's, it's a film called tampopo How it's do you called spell t-a-m-p-o-p-o it was a film when before then i had watched a lot of commercial cinema from around the world like all the Bollywood, like Munabai, which is about gangster and things like that, uh, like Lagan, which is very commercial and also all the old school Korean commercial stuff. But it was when I watched Tampopo that it really like expanded my horizons in terms of what art films are. Because, you know, Wes Anderson, you could say that he's actually quite commercial in terms of his understanding and his narrative. But Tampopo is an interesting film. It's done by this Japanese director called Junji Ito. They have a museum of him. It's done by Junji Ito? Junji Ito. The manga ka. The, the, horror, manga. the manga car, right? The horror. Oh, no, no, no. Ah, shit. Uh, Ju, Juzami Ito. Sorry. Okay, I love, I love Junji Ito like, stuff. Junji Ito, Thanks for pointing that out. That saved me a lot of face yeah. right there. Uh, Juzami Ito, yeah. yeah. So he has a, he has a museum. I love Junji Ito stuff. Uh, his new anime about Uzumaki is coming out. Lovely. Look I, on Adult Swim. I hope it doesn't uh, crash and burn like the previous anime that they adapted from. Which one was that? Gyo, no, not Gyo per se. Uh, Gyo was funny. It's funny in all the wrong ways, but I think yeah, there was great, a right? recent, I think a, a production house uh, adapted his uh, uh, collection. Right. And they did it, they they kind of butchered it. Uh, right. It's so but, sad. He's, but the, he really is a master. You know? he, he is. is a, he's a master in the, the very medium that he specializes in. But when you do transit out of that, right, that's yeah. where the problem arises. Trans- but the, I always find translating manga to live action, to live action uh, anime is so difficult. It's a hit or miss, really. Yeah, 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 it really is. I mean, you know, that's why like when there was talk about trying to translate uh, Sunny Liu's Art of Charlie Chan into an anime, a uh, live action anime mix. And I thought to myself like, when I read the comic, it works so beautifully on and, and that perfect medium with like the construction of the comic. You see the tape parts and everything. Yep. 
when you translate it to another medium, you need to be even more meta. And it's really so meta that how... how you need to have someone like crazy enough to have a vision to, to translate it to an appropriate medium. No? I don't think it's just a, a straight lifting. It doesn't work, yeah. Absolutely. Um, but going back to Tampopo, Tampopo is a film by Juzami Ito, not Junji Ito. And um, it's a film about food. It's about food culture in Japan. And it's really uh, like an interwoven series of stories. Uh, and they call it a ramen western. A ramen western? It's called a ramen western. That's interesting. Uh, because it's about a truck driver who stops in this... Ma- uh, ramen shop where and the ramen shop is failing because it's just this single mother trying to cook ramen and he trains her the way like they do in like um uh was it was it the seven samurai and what? things like that <laughs> she trains her to make the perfect ramen dish and this is interspersed with other vignettes of food and culture in, in japan that's universal mm. so one of my well i would love to share two but i'll share one one of my favorite scenes in it is when you have this expensive looking French restaurants because you know Japanese, they, they do love the French culture. Mm. I think I think Japan and France always have a shared love because they are so cultured, right? Yep. At least they think they are. Um, but <laughs> the in that scene, it's a French restaurant, very expensive. If all these businessmen, all businessmen uh, sitting around it, it's, it's similar to like a white man, white board man, <laughs> white, white board members sitting yep. around a dinner table and they start ordering food. Okay. And so the first person says, I have this and this and this. Yep. And the next person agrees with it and down the line. Yep. So you can tell that they're not making decisions of their own, yep. but they're picking their own, they're picking based on what? What has been chosen. What has been yep. selected because they're not savvy, right? Mm. And then one of the intern who has been beaten and abused verbally throughout this um, sequence, suddenly he, he displays an extraordinary knowledge of, Jap- of Japanese food and says, oh, this, this wine... It's your chef from this region because mm-hmm. it's clear that this dish is inspired by that. And the sommelier uh, has such a great conversation with him that all the other Japanese old men who are his seniors suddenly start blushing because for as ex- for as cultured and as they are and as, as rich they are, they know nothing about food mm-hmm. and the love of it. You know, it's the same way I think, you know, succeeding in a monetary sense is not the be all and all, even though it makes life very comfortable. But I think that the tragedy of 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 a lot of our modern societies around the world is that I think money is often seen as a means to exert dominance, mm. a dominance of perspective, a dominance of of ability because you have succeeded from a monetary standpoint. And to me, it always breaks my heart because this is a little segue, but you know, when you think of teachers as well, mm-hmm. the role that they play in our societies, like our teachers should be just as revered and respected as like our bankers as well because you know, everybody can name a teacher that they loved and a teacher that they hated. Mm. But you know, you, you know how big a, a role they played in your life. Yeah. That's a good, that's a very good mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. but I guess to answer your question, um, I watch more series than oh. films. Um, you like Breaking Bad. Uh? I imagine you're... I, I do like that, but I think I didn't rewatch it a couple of times. So, so until your, your question specifically as to uh, a type of, let's say, a series of film that I watch repeatedly, um, mm. my answer to that is Full Metal Alchemist Brother. Oh, I love it, man. <laughs> you know they did? They did a manga which expanded it and then they did a remake of it which was great as well. Yep. Actually, the remake was yeah. stronger because of how they dealt with pride and lust, right? Yep. 
so so moving. I think it's and the live action is such a tragedy. <laughs> let's let's oh not talk about god. that. Oh my god! You know the only live action manga adaptation that the Japanese have done right is maybe like Rioni Kenshin. Or yeah, that, like that. that that is what people have been saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But I think I watch uh, Brotherhood like seven, six, seven times. Yeah, because it's it's so sincere, right? It's you a very good experience. Do you have a brother? I'm curious. I don't actually. That's surprising to me because well, maybe do you ever wish you had a younger brother as well? Perhaps. Yeah, yeah, because I always feel like when you watch these kind of things, it means so much for you to watch it again. It's almost like the experience you never had. I, I always wonder that as I well. I just think it's a very good experience. Um, The soundtrack is great. Oh. I think Brotherhood does a very good job of pacing as well. Right. I think pacing as well. And I think I used to hate the comedic elements. Like ah. they, they would be very, very serious. Then it would cut scene to like a like a like a chibi or like a like a like comic a stick. <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Like, you remember when the two metal armors were fighting <laughs> each other and they tried to rub off each other's shit and things like that yeah but it's it's a very wholesome um package even though the the themes and the concepts they were they were talking about are very grave absolutely so it's a very good balance at the end of the day it's it's a very wholesome story <laughs> yeah i think i think so and, and i love this sort of like uh, I actually, you know, when I think of filmmaking, I'm so inspired by Japanese manga and anime. I mean, you're talking about the $500 Akira shirt. If I had tons of money, I would definitely buy it as well. Um, unfortunately, I'm a struggling filmmaker, so that's a no for now. Hint, hint, if you yeah. have any Akira shirts, you know, who will like it and appreciate it. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I think Japanese manga has really captured the imagination of the world. And I think that's such a beautiful thing about about the the form, right? Because you are not like creating elements that are already there. You are creating everything from scratch mm. because you're animating it. Yep. And I especially love the works of uh, Satoshi Kon who did oh, okay. Millennium Actress, yep. Paprika, uh, Perfect Blue. I mean, his work was plagiarized by Christopher Nolan. I yep. think that's fairly well known. Yep. Um, but you know, I, I, I'm going to take this opportunity since I'm on a podcast to really champion a manga artist that I really love uh, this guy called Naoki Urasawa. 20th Century Boys. Uh, his stuff <laughs> is so moving to me. Okay, what do you like about him? I like what I like about him is that there was always a fascination with with the the big and the fantastical because all his stories are about dreams. Mm. Right? If you look at Monster as well, I, I believe in I so I'll I'll add to that after, but I haven't read it sure. yet. Sure. Great story. But uh, 20th Century Boys is a great example. It's about a dystopian society based on the childhood. A dream yep. idea of the destruction of the world and it's so crazy right it's stupid yeah it's but positively stupid <laughs> positively stupid but the idea of like your childhood and what it meant to you and what it means for other people as well and how it shapes them mm. and then also subsequently with 21st century boys mm. the healing power of music and, and, and society it reaches very grand narrative conclusions but it's always very human as well mm. despite it maintaining a very consistent a sense of a thrill, right? Yep. Because you're, under, you're wondering who is this guy with the mask? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who is his friend, right? <laughs> yeah. You're thinking who's his friend? Yeah. Who, who is this guy? And then past a certain point when you read all these characters and how they've aged as well, right? Then you start to wonder like, oh my God, are they going to die? Yeah. Right? Remember that, that plum guy who was the manager of yep. the singer? And then you're like, oh, this guy's so cute, so earnest. Yeah. Must he die, yeah, really? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and then for these guys, they felt like real people. They do. And you know, I, I always feel like with narratives, the characters need to take the lead because it is their decision that makes more things more interesting and you can't arrive at some sort of neat narrative conclusion because the hand of the creator is forced. And when when these works are more organic and they present genuine dilemmas, uh, Naoki Rosawa, master of that. 
love to meet him one day. So, so many tangents. Um, okay, so so to answer the question about monster, so mm. I think I have this weird thing for uh, manga, especially, mm. even though there are means to watch it or uh, to to read it online now, but I'm very um uh, adamant about actually reading it in physical copy. Oh my god! Because I, I wish I had that luxury. You do do you read Japanese? Eh? No, no, no. In in translated, right? Because right, right. I think I I I watched a video explaining the the way Junji Ito does his his, his mangas, mm. and he deliberately uses the form of a book mm. and the way you flip, and he will put it on the page where you don't see it immediately. I agree. It is tension. Yes. Yeah. I it is tension, and it is also intentional. So I think let's say for Monster, I know of the series, I know of the anime. Uh. I will wait till I get a good deal on, let's say you get the whole collection. Mm. You can just read it in its original state mm. and then you can move on to the anime and stuff like that. I agree. And and I would even say that the anime always loses something because there's a sense of pacing. Hmm? Because it's such a personal thing because you, you dictate the pace as a yep. reader. And, uh, wow, monster. Oh my God, such good memories. Uh, It's such a dark tale. That's what I keep hearing. It's such a dark tale. Uh, I will also recommend at this point uh, Pluto which is his reimagination of Astro Boy. Oh, I didn't know it was that. Okay, okay. Yeah, it's a reimagination of Astro Boy. It's based on an episode of Astro Boy that he really liked about the seven strongest robots in the world. But the way he examines, it's very interesting because I think he wrote the story slightly after AI uh, came out, 2001, because it is a, po- it is a post-Iraq uh, war kind of film, uh, of manga as well. But... Um, his stuff always aims for grand concepts, but very humanistic stories. I would have right? to agree on the humanistic, yeah. The humanistic stories, like the kid, the bully, and then like the secret castle and everything is like, you know, this, this is what I love about stories. It's about the personal, right? When you're too efficient in a story, there's no joy in that. Because you don't have the detail, you don't have the texture. I mean, creativity isn't very efficient if you think about it. Fucking inefficient. The amount of times you beat your head against a wall, you know? So let's say for 20th Century Boy, there is the manga Mm. and there is the film. Yeah. So would you personally recommend someone who has never heard of it, but is interested, would you recommend them them to go straight to the manga or to the film? 100% the manga. Purely because you control the sense of pace mm. and and with films, you know, you are restrained by your production costs and everything. Mm. So you don't get the fully realized version of it in terms of production value. And then, but more importantly also, you know, there's a, you know, in 21st Century Boys is about the song that unites the world. That was surprising to me, but yes. Right? <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love how music is such a rallying point the way Beatles and, and Beach Boys can be as well. Um, but with, with 21st Century Boys, you know, when you actually hear the music, then your subjective opinion comes in because yep. you're wondering, do I like this music or not? Can yep. it move me? Because that's your litmus test, right? Like, if it doesn't move me, how can it move the world? Because when you like read this. it and it plays in your head, it sounds different, but then immediately after after reading it, I go and check the YouTube, like, what did it sound like? I was like, oh, okay, interesting. Precisely. <laughs> yeah. It would have been better to remain an ideal rather than realize because the ex- weight of expectation is so different because when you examine it from the comic book form, you're, ex- you're really... W- reading it from a very idealistic space. Mm. And that's why I, I really encourage people to continue reading as well. It's like before I watch the Harry Potter movies, you know, you read the books, right? And mm. it's like such a riveting read, right? Mm. And then you start to have these imaginations of like what 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 the Gryffindor common room looks like. <laughs> yep. And there's this imagination with the detail of what I explained that makes it so powerful. And watching it is always a spectacle. 
Yep, spectacle. It's a spectacle yeah. because you 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 is the the imagination is no longer yours. It's no longer subjective. It is objective because of the reality of the images that have been constructed that are on screen as well, right? As as fantastical as they are, you know, like with the moving staircases and all that, all that is really cool. But you know, you know when people nowadays don't maybe not everybody, maybe not everybody wants to imagine because they are concerned about what their imagination means. Is my imagination good enough to share with other people with how I imagine things to be? Mm-hmm. And I will always champion the idea that your imagination is good enough because you, 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 the fact that it's connected with you in a way that you can even imagine means something, right? And, and we should never put down these, these opinions as like, so-called fundamental as they are because the more we encourage people to imagine, the more change we'll get to see in society. And mm. I think like this whole conservative movement is is straying away from imagination because there's a lack of understanding, you know, with the idea of this anti-vaxxers. Dude, I, it's incredible. I met two people who, who are anti-flat uh, earthers in Singapore. Wow. Flat earthers, ah. Uh. Like you think it's just a myth. There are, there are, few, there are people in Singapore who believe in a flat earth theory. Mm. And, and not a meme, right? Not a meme. Okay. okay. One, one of them was getting divorced because of mm. the flat earth thing because his wife couldn't take it as well. But yeah, you know, I, I think that it's so important to imagine things because, I mean, obviously this is imagination gone wrong la, when you believe mm. in flat earth. But when you are able to read or uh, explore a range of content, that really allows you to really be aware of what's priority and what's important in your life. I, I really believe in that. And that's why in, in, in a society which consistently expects us to be productive, when we're assessed by our, our GDP, <laughs> right? Uh, don't get me wrong. I really appreciate all these things, but I feel that we can strive for a better balance in our societies because I feel, you know, at the end of the day, I'm not a communist. Really, I'm not. But I believe that how much do we really need, mm. you know, and, and how hungry are we? And time as well. These three things do not exist in isolation. They don't? Because so many people try to succeed at a young age because it's about being listed in Forbes 30 under 30 mm. and whatever shit, right? Yeah. And I really hate these kind of metrics because it goes against the grain of like the fact that our lives leading up to 80, what does it mean to be somebody under 30? Does it set off forth to be a great human being? Or does it detract from our own path and our philosophies in terms of what we want to do? And, you know, at the end of the day, if you don't do anything great, but you're a great father, I respect that so much as well, purely because it's like, it is not about that. It's not about your success financially, I feel, um, which is so easy to forget because it's such a celebrated uh, metric and mm. in terms of control and power in Singapore. But it's really about like, what does it mean to be a human? How many close friends do you have? Who do you care for? Who cares for you? And really about like, you know, my some of my best moments are just hanging out with my friends and seeing what they have to share because I understand them better as people as well. Mm. Um, and you know, I I think identity is never singular; it is a collective thing. And to not recognize the multitude of perspectives is to reduce it to some homogenous idea. And that's why, like, the fact that we have so many different people doing so many different things like you with this podcast I was super happy to 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 be a part of it purely because um 
it's so nice, right? It's so nice to see people do things. It's so nice to see people commit their time to things which may not make them a million dollars. And and they don't have the idea of, I want to make a million dollars to begin with mm. because everything feels so calculated. So I would digress to an example. Sorry if I'm rambling. No, uh, it's but, fine. But, don't worry about uh, it. I, 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 have a, I had a friend who worked at one of those big like um, cap ride companies. Okay. And, and, and she's such a good friend. We used to play mahjong all the time. And one day she says, I was telling her what I was doing and then she said to me, what, what is the USP? Unique selling point. Okay. What is the KPI, right? Mm-hmm. How, what is your ROI? Okay. And it's like we are a country that's so obsessed with the abbreviations and, and efficiency that, you know, taking the long scenic route has benefits as well. I think there are times where we can choose to be more efficient. But really, I think, you know, when we assess everything according to dollars and cents, uh, yeah, where, 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 where does your imagination come in? And, you know, we have such amazing Singaporean talents that are really pushing and finding out there in, in the world as well. And I think I, I would love it that our media really celebrates not just talents that have made it, mm. but really talents that are trying to do something fresh. Because that really invites conversation as well. And, you know, I that's why I believe in like, Dude, why is our Singapore Writers Festival not working with our Singapore Film Festival? Why do these things need to be so siloed? You know, wouldn't uh, it be amazing to have a, a Singapore Film Festival film, uh, like the Singapore Writers Festival con- conducting a writer's talk with novelists talking about screenwriting? It is this cross-pollination of creativity that I believe is the way to go forward as we, we begin to realize that your form may be distinct, but creativity is universal. Mm. And when you say creativity is about communication really of a perspective yeah very interesting what is have you seen something of late that kind of changed the way you think or surprised you in a way wow um i would say wow um i mean the first thing that comes to mind is a film called margaret and okay. margaret is a film by kenneth lonergan that was shot in 2005, but only came out in 2011. That's a whopping six years. Why? And it, it, it took so long to come out because he wanted to have a three hour, three and a half hour edit of the film. Mm. But his key investor felt like nobody will ever watch it. Lah. Right. And, and, and to be fair, it is a film that is very, uh, it does meander a little bit, but I feel that it has a point to make. This is not a mainstream film, so maybe mm. the investor it was not the right fit because it's always about your profile of your investor with mm. the budget of the film and things like that. And you know, with producers, you're always just trying, okay, I got money, can I do that? But with this, with this film, Margaret, what, what really spoke to me, and I'll give you a little bit of context of the film. It's really about a young girl. Uh, I think she is like 16 to 18 and she actually is sort of semi, semi-complicit in an accident where okay. a lady is a lady dies. Mm. And the film really begins with the aftermath of it. With her and the act of growing up with an egocentric view of her perspective in a New York environment. And you see her flaws, you see her, you see her pains, but you also see her like her desires and how she's trying to work through issues of identity. Mm. And like Shushi 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 for lack of a better word, sabotage a pauto, the bus mm. driver that actually committed the crime yep. and, and 
And you know, it's these things where you're really working through your principles and your values that was so articulated so clearly that when the director cut to a shot of people just crossing the road, that's really what it is. It's really about like, why do you cross the road? Right? And, and the fact that you see so many people and different faces crossing the road and you don't know which face to focus on is like, whose narrative or whose story you're following as well. And um, yeah, it was really powerful for me because at the end of the film, um, I, I'm sure not many people watch it, so I would just sell it as hard as I can. Uh, really, because it's, it is a bit slow at parts. But the end of the film where she just suddenly with this self-righteous, young, American, white, outspoken girl with her philosophy suddenly watches a, a operatic piece with her mom who she's been distant to be, distanced to because she's trying to assert her identity and opinions with a mom who is more practical. Mm. She starts to break down and cry, right? And this is like pent up energy with the expectations of who we are to be and who we are that really resonated with me because New York to me has always been very similar to Singapore in that like we may not have the same degree of liberalism that New York possesses but the pace of life is the same. Mm, agree. The pace of life is definitely the same. And um, to be able to recognize how difficult it is for our younger generation to grow up to have their own opinions in a world where they're so saturated and bombarded with opinions and expectations, expectation of being woke, expectation of finding a perfect partner, expectation of knowing what is good to eat in Singapore. Yep. Right. Knowing where knowing where the good where is good to eat in Singapore is actually a big point of social pressure. I feel. Because you're expected to know where has the best nasi lemak when you invite a foreign guest in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's these things which I feel like we are working through, and I highly recommend uh, Margaret, which is on Disney Plus. Actually, so so you watch it, like, it's it's actually Anna Panikin from Vampire Diaries, and um, wow. she was Rogue, I believe, in X Men. Yep. Um. So, so it's such a shitty ass like image because you know they sell it on the images right Netflix they always, does, yep, they always yep. put the prettiest person I think they the change person. it as well they like do the change posters, it. yeah they do yeah. change it it is smart yeah but Margaret is just this like looks like a cheap ass film but it's a great film to watch and you're going to watch a two and a half hours version on Disney Plus instead of three hours and hmm, interesting it, it is extremely engaging as, I mean it's all star cast you have um, Matt Damien act, acting as a teacher who may or may not have a relationship with her because mm. You know, for a young girl, it's also about like, who can you attract? Mm-hmm. Who who likes you? You know, because it's about that validation in terms of your looks and how attractive you are with all these different factors that, yep. that you factor in as well. And I love it because, you know, it just feels so honest. So honest and something that reminds me of like, our experiences around the world are the same. Hmm? So many tangents. Where can I go from here? <laughs> okay, I'm just curious to know ha- how has your taste in let's say films how, how how has it changed across your journey? Has it even changed? Definitely has changed. I think it's like you, it's part of growing and, and and evolving. I mean, when I was younger, I used to love all the commercial films a lot. Uh, I used to I started out loving like with any like plebeian so called in our industry. You start off loving like Wes Anderson and Quentin Tarantino. And you, you, you mentioned just now that Wes Anderson was a bit commercial. Definitely. Why, why would you say that? Because I think from my perspective, someone who isn't actively like creating films, I would see, I would think that he's pretty artistic. So wh- why would you think he's commercial? Uh, the fact that you know who Wes Anderson is. <laughs> the fact that most people know who Wes Anderson is and associate him with a style. 
So when I produced Tiongbaru Social Club, to be honest, I felt that even though we adopted that symmetrical sort of look and that color block kind of theory, actually it's a very different film. Because if you think about it, Wes Anderson always places his characters in real spaces, even though they are color blocked, uh, a very geometric, right? Mm-hmm. But in Tiongbaru, is it's just a fantastical space. It's about the it's about reducing it to about a corporation's goal to reduce it to the bare minimum, and and the individual's response to it. Um, so I started off with like watching more of I love uh, Royal Tenenbaums to this day and Rushmore as well from Wes Anderson and Tarantino and then as I watch more as I met people and, and you know you explore I think to this in this day and age it's definitely evolved in that like I've always exp- I w- actually I love Stephen Chow so I'm a big Stephen Chow fan well, what is, who is a, who is Stephen Chow <laughs> who is Stephen Chow as I said I'm, I'm not that no uh, no all good all good bro yeah. uh, I, I don't mean okay <laughs> Stephen Chow, he did Kung Fu Hustle, he did Shaolin Soccer. Okay, okay. He's just a comedian. Mm. And I appreciate that, you know, in your most depressed times, you just watch Stephen Chow, bro. Okay. You know, going to make you laugh. And and there's such great value in that. So I I appreciate the sentiment of emotions that like what comedy can do in instilling some degree of hope. Um, But I think of late, given our market circumstances and where I'm going as well, I've really been inspired by the films of Christoph Kieslowski. And, um, and the other one is Mike Lee. So I'll, I'll, I'll go I'll talk briefly about both of them. What, what, what attracts, what is attractive about those two? Christoph Kislovsky is a filmmaker who has done amazing uh, anthologies. So his first called Decalogue mm-hmm. is based off the Ten Commandments. So he interprets the Ten Commandments in a different way, right? So his commandment, I believe, thou shall not steal, it revolves around a young boy who actually is a cat murderer. And it's about the idea of like when the cat murderer goes to court and the lawyer who defends him, like, can you have can can a rigid system have sympathy for a young person whose ideas and thought process you may not know? Mm-hmm. And the the work is really phenomenal. Lah. I mean, there's other anthology that's really phenomenal, it's called uh Three Colors. And it is about uh the French flag, right? It starts off with blue, white, mm. and red. And blue is supposed to be, I think, liberty. And liberty is interpreted in a fresh way because it's about uh, a woman who is recently widowed. And it's how do you liberate yourself from depression in your past mm. as well. And I find it so moving because there is such a in, such a logical approach to the films, but there's so much heart because, you know, what I feel is a challenge is like, how do you capture the intangible or, mm. or the the uh, make something in film feel opportunistic because you you know when your audience watches a film they're always thinking about the hand of the director right when you watch all Marvel yeah la, this guy show bad la, this guy show traitor la, look at his face look at the way of what he wear la, show yeah. bad guy la, you know? like stereotypes la. precisely yeah. and like um, there are no, no necessarily good or bad characters in the film but just just people people trying to live people trying to love and um, but it's always done with such a humanistic turn to it. And, and you know, for those of people who listen, I will sell it to them a little bit in the sense that there's a second segment called White. And White is essentially about a, a failed marriage between a Polish guy and a French woman. And it fails because in terms of money, they're not equal. And in mm. terms of language, he doesn't speak the same language. Okay. And it, White, essentially, the color in the French flag is supposed to represent equality. And so the film White 
essentially about the divorce and about this Polish man seeking revenge against his wife. Mm. So in order to make money, this Polish man is propositioned to kill a man. Okay. Right? The guy says, this guy wants to kill himself and if you, you know, if you kill him, he wants it, you pay, he'll pay you good money, you can survive for a year on the money he's going to give you. Mm. So the guy is like, nah, I'm not sure. But he becomes so desperate that he agrees to this act of killing someone else. So he goes to kill someone else at this designated meat site. And he sees the same guy, the guy who gave him the proposition to begin with, right? The guy who offered him the yep. job. And he says, oh, does the guy still want to kill himself? And then the guy goes, more than ever. And then the protagonist goes, uh, where is he? And the guy turns and says, it is me. <laughs> you know? And the other guy says, are you sure? Yes, more than ever. And he pulls out the gun and he says, are you sure this is your last chance? And the guy says, yes. He's so depressed, right? Mm. Older man, you know, he has family, but clearly something is troubling him. Can't communicate or whatever. And then the guy fires the bullet. He fires the bullet, right? Okay. And then he, the guy leans backwards forward to the ground and then he realizes, oh shit, I'm alive. And then the guy says, it's a blank. The first is a blank, the second is a bullet. Do you still want to die? I will shoot you if you want to die. And the guy suddenly looks at me and says, I don't want to die. <laughs> what? Wow. Right? I don't want to die anymore. And the guy says, okay, good. Thank you. Slight comedic, right? Yeah. Slight comedic. And says, the guy takes out the envelope from his chest and says, I think you've earned the money. <laughs> right? And, and you know, there's something so simple they can do with so little props and staging and a spectacle, but it's so human in terms of like these expectations, in terms of like, I think everybody in our day and age, most people have really contemplated suicide, but you don't do it for a number of different reasons, right? Like you love your family or you feel like it's just a phase, but you feel so stressed out and depressed that like you need to sit with that emotion, you know? And I think that with films like that, which really allow you to examine it, when, when you say something like that, if... You, when I told you this, I imagine you putting yourself in the position of the guy who was shot rather than the guy who needed to do the shooting. And that's general, yeah. 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 And, and, and you know, it makes you re-examine your values, right? It's so powerful and so simple. So I, that's the kind of film that I love to do. And with Mark Lay, which is a British Caspian, I think you'll like his stuff very much. He did this film called Happy Go Lucky, which was introduced by this Savan Kangwe who I started working with. Um... And, and Happy Go Lucky is a film which I always feel, oh, damn, we could have done it in Singapore and it would be perfect. If I tell you the premise now, it would be perfect. And it is perfect because it is about a lady who decides to take up driving lessons after losing her bicycle, right? Okay. She takes up driving lessons and the driving instructor is this grumpy old man who is telling her, live by the rules, you know, stick to the plan, you know, check your rearview mirror, if not, you deduct points, you know? And and she's driving and she's so happy-go-lucky and she says like, you're not taking this seriously. You want to be a driver or what? Driving is life or death, you know? And this girl is a happy-go-lucky person and this person is a grumpy person and he, and she's so happy-go-lucky that she eventually falls in love with him. Oh, that's interesting. So, so she, he goes like, you're trying to seduce me, right? You're always so happy because you're trying to seduce me and change my viewpoint of the world, right? And she's like, dude, you need to have personal boundaries. <laughs> You know? Yeah. And then she just says, this is my last lesson with you and I'm going to leave. And that film is so lovely because, you know, when you watch a film like that, it's so slice of life mm. that you suddenly realize that like happiness is a choice. It is a choice. It is a choice of perspective. Like, sure, you're always thinking about like, can I move into that three bedroom condo? Or like, can I eat? 
can I enjoy the lifestyle as my friends and everything? But look, you know, if you, you're just honest with your life and you're comfortable with what you choose to do, I think it's it's okay. You know, I, I, I have honestly never felt the pressure of like eating in an Atas restaurant. I, you know, on your note about food and everything, right? You know, nowadays, I find myself so much more satisfied eating that warm bowl of bakute where you can dip the yotiao in <laughs> the dark sauce, you know? If, you're, if you are lucky, you get the longku, right? Yeah. The dragon bone yep. shit, right? Which Where the meat falls off the bone with your white rice because so much of our meals are replaced with brown rice because it's healthier. Mm-hmm. And, oh, dude, it's as simple as that satisfaction and the warmth it brings you because bakute is food for the laborers, right? Because mm. usually it just, just used to be the pork rib and yep. they, they boil it. Versus like, some atas bake got five different flavors, got different layers. Takes a long time to prepare. Like I'm gonna feel full and happy eating my my laksa, my chakwetel, yep. and everything. And I think that there is something that, that that comes around to everybody because you know I think exploring this like atas food and everything is always going to be exploration, but never comfort food. Like I would imagine for most people, ninety nine percent of Singaporeans, their last meal is not going to be a meal at Odette. Mm. It will never be an meal at Odette. It could even be your type one because when it comes to the things we experience around us and decisions we make, it's about your memories and, and the new memories that you form as well that makes it very powerful. That's why when you go back to your primary school, you eat the wonton meat that costs $1, it's never going to taste the same. Mm. So don't go back when you are secondary school. Don't go back to primary school. And <laughs> Nostalgia. <meat>. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What is What are some of the lessons that I guess your favorite films have, have, have taught you? Um, that That it's, it's always uh, it's always in your mind yeah okay so on this note my, my the film I'm going to immediately think of a reference is going to be very strange um, but it would be maybe Bill and Ted's excellent adventure uh, the, excellent journey okay okay uh, Keanu Reeves yep. and um, what's the other actor's name damn it but yeah, you know, they travel in that like phone booth thing and like, this is a moment where at the end where they go like, God gave rock and roll to you, gave rock and roll to you, which is based off the Kiss song, right? And to me, it was always just about the fact that like, with art and everything else we experience, it is making things feel a little bit more tolerable and knowing that you're not alone. And that's what makes the communal experience so powerful as well. You know, that's why when you like a certain piece of music, a certain piece of art, and you talk to somebody that likes the same thing, you immediately feel a certain kinship as well because mm. you, whether it's true or not, you imagine that they have captured a certain essence that 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 they have received, uh, you've received as well. And um, yeah, I would say that it's it's so amazing that we have so many types of, local content coming out that can can also genuinely be very fascinating and interesting. I think people are fighting for it in slightly different ways. Mm. I think Junfeng, the fact that he chose something to do with animation is amazing for this year's NDP purely because, um, look, animation, you don't associate Singapore and animation at all. Not at all. And then to see the types of animation that are coming out and to see the talent is um, phenomenal, right? You bring it to the public consciousness. And beyond that, it's like, recognizing animation as a legitimate form of filmmaking as well. I think that's so important because, you know, it's never going to be homogenous in terms of perspective. And you may disagree with people and everything, but I always feel that, you know, with greater understanding, listening to people, whether you disagree with them or not, 
and trying to understand that that will really immediately make the world a much better place you know really make the world a much better place yeah so to bridge it from that I'm just curious to know what in your opinion is wholly unique to the medium of films um the act of editing you interesting know, the, the fact that like with most other art forms like with fine art or like music you don't put two images to slice new meanings together so as simple as like if I show one person picking up a phone and, and saying hello and I show someone else picking up a phone and saying hello you think they're having a conversation fair right because I put the images back to back right but they may not be you know mm. that is the construction of film in a nutshell like you 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 are playing on the grammar of, of what has been established before to uh, tell your storyline, certain emotions and things like that. Yeah, very interesting. I'm gonna have this beer. Please be my guest. Hmm. Drinking is a unfortunately a big part of the film industry. You were saying it's 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 how people network and get along and talk, right? Yeah, I mean. So, so some of me, you should go to a festival, man. So awesome, like film festival, because people are genuinely very welcoming. Like even if a stranger say, "Hey, bro, want to have a drink?" They will go with a drink with you. Um, so unless you go to Khan, like Khan is atas lah. But like, so for example, Puchon, which is a fantastic festival, is a genre film festival. Mm-hmm. You go every night; they will have a communal karaoke. So it's not like our <laughs> Singapore, right? Singapore, Singapore karaoke is like. Or you and your friends a small room you pay per person. Their karaoke is like a bar mm. and it's communal singing. So you stand in front of everybody in the bar and you sing, and it's so nerve wracking, right? Mm-hmm. But when you see all this like angmos, they sing out of tune, they don't give a shit. It just becomes a fun vibe mm-hmm. where you are just drinking with strangers, strangers, conversation because you know the beautiful thing about film is that when you're at these sort of festivals. Everybody recognizes that everybody, whether they're better or worse, they're trying to make films. And we all mm. recognize each other's struggle. And it becomes a, 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 a shared understanding that like, this is our way of unwinding. La. And um, once you have a few drinks, then you really start to hear what people really think and what they really feel. And so it's fun. La. It's just fun and insane. La. Especially genre. Genre people are mad. You know, like um, I met this girl from Malaysia called Amanda. And she's doing a film called Tiger Stripes. And it's about a girl going through puberty in an Islamic school. Mm. But she becomes a weird tiger. So the religious teacher in the school thinks that she's the incarnation of Satan. That's interesting. <laughs> amazing, right? Yeah. Dude, it's amazing that, it's, that a female filmmaker from Malaysia is making it in a country and she most likely will be banned in, in, in Malaysia. But it's dope, but yeah. Sounds dope. But you know, it's about that courage and the fact that you feel excited about it is only because... You can't imagine someone having the fucking guts to make some shit like this, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about, I think I think, I think before uh, that the conversation kind of winds down and we, we, we end it, I want to talk about two of the films that you had had in making, mm. either The Apprentice or Piece of Meat. Because <sighs> I found them to be oddly fascinating. I, mm. I watched the trailer for Apprentice mm. and I thought the premise was brilliant. Thank you. And piece Not of meat. Any hand in it, but thank you. Yeah, and piece of meat was I think you and your friend uh going through it, the director. That's right. It? Yeah, it's same team that did uh National Day Parade this year. Yeah. yeah so you, like yeah, for Apprentice, you you were the producer for it. 
Yes, associate producers. Junior, okay. more slightly more junior producing role. Yes. Yeah, so it's it's your choice as to which one you want to talk about. Because I'm just curious about. I think from a more conceptual standpoint, um, did you have any say to the technicalities of it? What was the general uh experience like? So for our sort of apprentice lah. Apprentice was really a unique experience because actually that year in 2014, I started off with working on Eric Cruz in the room. Mm-hmm. So I had done that first and then I jumped onto Apprentice. And I jumped on the Apprentice when I think we were a month before production. So that's actually a very short time for preparation where I had to digest all the information. And when I jumped onto the project, I remember that the production was very challenged because I don't think we had enough money at the time. Um, so the whole process was very challenging especially since we had like French partners like our DOP coming down and communicating with what they wanted to do to make their best work because mm. it's a matter of pride, right? Mm-hmm. And what we could really afford. And because we are so scarce in terms of resources, <laughs> I remember <laughs> when when we went to Sydney shoot, so we shot the exterior scenes of the prison and everything in, in Sydney. And when we shot those exterior scenes in Sydney, I remember like I have to become the prisoner and the prison oh. officer because <laughs> not enough Asians, right? And we put this... We put these ads around Sydney to say and the university and everything say, hey, are you Asian? Do you want to cameo in a Southeast Asian film? And of course, we got some people, but not enough, right? And I feel most tragic about my brother. So my brother was staying in Sydney at the time. So I thought like, oh, I'm going to get a hang on my brother. You know, he's a cool guy. I invite him on set. And so when I invited him on set, I remember very clearly another producer went up to him and said, hey, hey can you extra in our film? Because my brother was just meant to be an extra pair of hands, right? Yep, yep. And my brother says, okay lah. And then he, he, the producer actually calls the hairdresser to come down and she shaves my brother's hair. And my brother had like shoulder length hair. And my brother didn't know how to say no. So he ended up, you, you can actually see my brother as both prisoner and prison guard. And it's like, to me, it's like, I love my brother. We have not been like super close all the time, but it's nice to know that we are immortalized standing on top of that guard house over there while his shape was head up and he kept staring at me and thinking like, you, you owe me for this, yeah, right? Yeah. And I cook for him Indomie, you know. I go to the Asian grocer to, to buy Indomie for him every day. Where we have Padang's Raman who cook the steak to put into the Indomie. I mean, production stories are insane. La. We had like tales of hauntings, la, insane stories. La. It's always an adventure. But I think that remaining true to the vision of the film is always very challenging. And that's why like, you know, even as a producer, you have your stresses of budget and timeline. Mm-hmm. But I think it's so important for a producer to know how to manage your director. And, you know, for someone like Junfeng, very talented. But, you know, I remember, like, all of all of the producers consistently reminding him that, like, hey, you know, you, you genuinely have something good here. Focus on that. You know, we'll tell you what are the issues. We'll try to solve for you. But let's, let's work together on that, you know. And I think it's such an important standpoint to it. I mean... Yeah, I just also remember the the lead actor Wan Hanafi Su. Wow, that guy is. I can't say it lah. It's too. I have to censor myself, but that guy is a legend lah. Let's just put it this way. Let's just put it in a way that I. W- it was the first time in my life where I had a very overweight Eastern European woman sitting on my lap in France because of one Hanafisu. <laughs> and it was a very unpleasant experience. It was one that eventually, contrary to what I was led to believe, I had to pay for. Uh, and all I remember was, this is not glamorous at all. I mean, I'm in Ankhan, I could be in so many different places, so many different people, but here I am. 
in the dodgiest of strip clubs yep. just to accompany this older actor to, mm. to experience life to the fullest because I kept thinking myself, okay lah, okay lah, you know, he's first, maybe his only time to go to club, okay <laughs> lah, must respect your elder lah, you know. But, you know, the experience is always going to be it lasts, so, yeah. so meaningful, you know, because yep. it's like, that year we had uh, Apprentice and Yellowbird in Khan Film Festival, which is, we had two more films than China did in, in the festival, which is China at zero. Obviously. Yeah, fair. <laughs> I was uh, wondering, like, math is like, okay. Yeah. So, but it's incredible. And we had a Singapore party and the Singapore Film Commission came in to celebrate these two local works. And, you know, I just felt like so much pride that we had slugged and, and fought for everything. And all my sacrifices at the time were, it felt validated, like, as uncomfortable as it was, as, as, as many hard decisions I had to take. And, uh, you know, you always wonder when you work on anything, could you have done it better? Mm. You know, it's not about revisiting the past, but it's really an after-action review of what you can do better in the future. And with Apprentice, I would say that definitely there are things I could have done, in my, done better, but, you know, I, I, I always have such a, such a fond feeling when I think about the entire team uh, for all the connections, but also fallouts it would be amiss to remiss to ignore the conflicts that have happened that you know it is all you you may harbor feelings of hatred towards other members of the crew hatred is a strong word right? but when you all watch a film in the cinema together we watch it capital with the crew and everything oh, dude, I always cry I always cry because not because I cry Coco but because um you care. You mm. know that so many people have cared. So many people have cared and sacrificed so much in order to put this to life. And whether it is top-notch or not, mm. it is a step forward. Mm. And it is so sincere in how it tried to tackle the issue. Yep. And that's why I always love and respect Jun Feng. I mean, if you ever meet Jun Feng, you, sh you should do a podcast on Jun Feng. By I would love to. I, I can contact him for you, no problem. It's whether the guy wants to do it. Like, <laughs> I'm so busy, right? But Jun Feng is such a, such a, such a sincere person that I always appreciate what he tries to do because he's a very socially conscious filmmaker with the subject matter that, that he tries to touch, right? And different types of cinema exist in, in our landscape as well. And it's just like how, what you explore and, and you know, because all of it combined, I believe, forms a greater sense of identity. You can never pin it down to one film. Yep. Um, and so this is a natural jumping point to um piece of meat. Did I send you the full film? I just trailer. No, I I saw stills, but before we go into that, mm -hmm. I want to know like for Apprentice, was it early on in your career that you started out? In that? Yeah, very early. I I worked on it 2014. Yep. I joined the company early 2013. Okay. And I was freelancing on and off at end 2012. Okay. Um one of my earliest productions, it was back then when I was very like I was a dictator. La. I was very by the book, la. you know, like in terms of like must, hey, I'm going to be 10 minutes before the call time. You better be here if not something is wrong. And it definitely helped, la, you know, and still some sort of discipline. But um, yeah, we didn't, we didn't trade it for, for the world and the experience. I mean, you know, <laughs> again, going back to, I, we, <laughs> so, 
So the crazy thing is our lead producer actually at the time, he he tried to save money on accommodation. So we ended up staying on a farm in Australia. <laughs> so every morning you wake up, you see the fucking cow wake you up, moo, you know? And then you're going to have to go to the jail to do this <laughs> yeah, penalty yeah. shit, right? Yeah. And, right? And then you have this shitty TV with no reception and everything is fucking insane. You to be in that position, I was thinking like, oh my God, why do you save $10 for this? Right? And... But it's so nice to be in a, ca- a small wooden cabin and to have your lead actor, uh, for Rahman. He, he, what, dude, the guy can cook steak, like, he cooks steak, we cook the inner meat, then we mix it. Oh, it sounds good. And then we watch TV together. It was really like, like going through secondary school, sort of like, like a yeah, yeah. camp kind of shit, right? Sounds like Which it. Which is like a bit juvenile, but at the same time, it's like, why do we, why do we try to make everything feel so professional when, you know, sometimes in this case with like things like even like corporate dinner and dances and mm. things like that if you, the more casual you make it the more you get to see who people really are and to contribute to a genuine part of the culture as well you know yeah so from that going to piece of meat because I think it came out at a later date yeah. and I think it's further on into your career and you you and your yeah. friend and you and your friend were the ones directing it that's right so no, how, no. how did the experience change let's say from apprentice to that and because I, I think you I didn't see the film per se, but I saw- I'll send it, I'll send it to you. That be, that, I'm thankful for that, but I saw stills of it and I think yeah. I saw uh, the animated portions of it and I thought it was it was pretty interesting, yeah. Yeah, so I think um, the genesis of the film actually, this one full credit needs to be given to Eric Koo because he had the idea of a uh, piece of meat in its, in its form mm-hmm. in the very beginning. He saw it as an animation and it moves to live action at the very end, but we- developed the idea and we, we we adapted it to be slightly different um with piece of meat i think animation is so different it really opened my perspective to what animation is and how to direct it because animation you construct everything right and you're thinking about the time it takes to, to do animation as well especially stop motion oh yeah definitely because you're adjusting so many different characters so i think for the f- full film which is a 12 minute film we took about two years to make it and we work weekends. I mean, more the animators. Lah. For me, it was less stressful because I would like sort of storyboard it out, write the script and things like that and give my opinions and ideas. And, and they were the ones to actually physically animate everything. Mm-hmm. So full credit to Gerald Trong and of course, the talented Mark Wee from Finding Pictures. Um, we have obviously developed a very strong relationship because we did NDP together and we love each other. Lah. <laughs> um, we really do. Um, but yeah, with, with Piece of Meat, I think... Um, when we it was really when we got to the ed- editing stage when they animated certain portions that we were, we were it was a very robust argument and discussion because Jared had worked on it for such a long period of time a sustained period of time and then for me like I only come in like maybe once every two weeks to come <laughs> and say hi and just give my feedback and yep, yep. like it becomes so challenging, right? Between the person who's worked on it so long and you coming in as a new person with your ideas and everything without having put in the same amount of time. But, you know, you really have to be very disciplined about the fact that creativity is not about the time you put in. It's about the quality of ideas and recognizing it as well. Mm. That's why I always respect a younger person with strong ideas over a senior with poor ideas because it's not about seniority at all. Um, It is meritocratic in that sense. Mm. And it's sad, but... Uh, when you factor in age, it is never going to be meritocratic. And with Peace of Meat, I think then we refined it. I had a great time working on the song for it. Uh, we wrote some lyrics. And I think it was, I think one of my most 
special memories to be able to watch a film on the big screen than to see a foreign audience respond to it. What was um, that like? Emo lah, sure emo. I mean, this. You know, when I started out as a filmmaker, I just always kept telling myself, "Ah, yeah, okay lah. If I don't make it, if I don't, if I, if I never receive any awards or anything, I knew. I told myself. I told myself this as well. It's okay lah. You know, if you become a filmmaker, don't expect to get married lah. You know, mm. because it requires so much time, and who can put up this bullshit as well? And you know, to be able to go to Cannes a second time round. <laughs> And and to to have a work a piece of work showing there was really magical uh, in the sense that look you can dream and 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 you know you may never I may never go to Cannes Film Festival again but I and obviously you don't want to rest on your laurels so use it as some sort of excuse but you know the the fact that you are able to that people appreciate your work. And and the fact that you're able to share with, with a broad audience what it is means so much. Mm. And then then it so so you know for many young creatives, I believe that's the first hurdle, like getting getting the initial claim mm. through whatever form, whether it's an award or whether it's like critical mass. Um, but and, and it will always be a, such a treasured memory. But I think, you know, no matter what, you're always going to feel upset because it's a sustained journey as well. Yep. Like, how do you sustain it? Like, how do you make sure that, you know, with art house films, how you, you're never going to make like 70 million on an art house film unless you're Emily, Amelie and recoup and then you can just chill and for the rest of your life. How, how do you make it a sustainable practice? And I think that's what many young people in Singapore are facing today. And that like, even with TikTok and Instagram, whether they're stars or not, it's more like, I'm sure they all feel about like, the question is about sustainability. How long can I do this? And like, what do we do after this as well? And um, to which I would say that, you know, really enjoy it while it lasts, but really it's, it's brutal, but it's about survival of the fittest. And it's mm. about being able to adapt to provide something that, that resonates and the, the more you resonate the, the greater your longevity I mean you know Jack Neal's quality of filmmaking I love the guy you know he's definitely an artist but it, it has deteriorated over the years you know from from the early days when I'm sure you've seen I'm Not Stupid and then you cry also when Selena it's a good film yeah very solid you know as a young person it's like you really understand yep. the society a lot more you have a your world expands just a little bit mm. right but nowadays like his work just feels like very caught up in the technical exploration rather than the content side of things. And, you know, that so much respect for him to have such a sustained career and that, that means something as well. And that's why, like, I feel for anybody in the creative industry, you know, having the, having, it is such a difficult thing because you need to find people that, that believe in you and in what you're doing in a, in a very organic sense. Mm. But also to be able to take to be able to see when feedback comes in that you disagree with mm. and, and to chart their own path because you never know what's going to be right or wrong because it's always a gamble. Yep. You know, and um, that's why I always feel like must have a lot of guts. Uh. Must have a lot of guts and you need to be slightly masochistic because you are an explorer. You know, you are an explorer uh, in, a, in a mental sense and the more you explore, even if you have not discovered something new, your exploration would put you in the greatest state than most people. 
but you cannot expect financial remuneration or reward for that services as well. Because I feel so confident that so many producers, given their skill sets and the stress level they have to deal with, would survive in most industries, to be honest. Yeah, because it takes a lot of resilience. Yeah. The f- piece of made film, is it available for public viewing or is it uh, like for specialized showcases only? So in Singapore, I'm not sure. Um, oh, actually, you can get it on Objectives. Objectives is a art house like platform in Singapore. So, so we gave them the rights for it. Um, if you are not in Singapore, for for the, <laughs> for the listeners out there, yeah, um, that we actually uh we actually listed on Amazon. So actually, you can rent them for like a dollar, two dollars, in the US and other territories as well. Uh, amazing man, it was shown on French French public television. Wow, you know, it's insane. And you know, like we always think of France as smaller territory than the US. But actually, most Asian films make bulk of their money in France. That's interesting. Yeah, because France actually, you know, they're snobbish. I agree. <laughs> but fuck, they're cowardly, man. They really are. You, you, there's no denying They have that, a final appreciation of, of things. For sure. I mean, look, you don't talk about wine and cheese without mentioning France. That's fair. And um, yeah, so whenever we sell a film, because actually the business of filmmaking is a completely different ballgame altogether. Very interesting with your sales agents, exhibitors, distributors, production houses. And with France, they are considered a key territory for films. So for example, we did Ramen Tay. Mm-hmm. Our key market was actually France. For a Singapore Japanese film, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Because in France, actually, it crossed 100k admissions. That means over more than 100k people went to visit it, watch oh. it in France. And then you think about Singapore, how many people are going to watch it in Singapore, right? And most like 30k, 40k. Mm. Because it is a bit slower. It is a little bit less sensationalistic in the vein of a common experience like the army in our boys to men. Mm. But yeah, France, is, France was a major territory for us. And um, it's surprising, right? When you talk about food and culture, that film actually sold to the greatest number of territories I've ever worked with, which is close to four, close to fifty. Wow, fifty different countries around the world. Yeah, Apprentice. Um, I think sixteen, somewhere around sixteen. Well, because subject matter a bit depressing, and you know people don't like depressing. Content. <laughs> yeah. So, one one last thing I really want to touch on is you mentioned about good ideas. Like, mm. what would you personally define as a good idea? Like, how, how do you conceive of that? Or what are you, like, attracted to? What are the types of qualities are you attracted to? Um, it is very subjective. Of course. Yeah, it uh, is. In, in, my, in my opinion, a good idea is one that's able to shift or transform the existing paradigm into something fresh and accessible for an audience. And what I mean when I say something like that is that when I tell you the log line, you immediately get the gist of it in terms of the layers and the dimensions and depth. So for example, one film that I've been actively working on for two years to try to write the outline in my free time. You know what Nasi Kang Kang is? Not exactly. Nasi Kang Kang. Is that rice? Yes. Okay. Nasi, right? Yeah. Nasi Kang Kang is a Malay belief that if a woman were to squat over steaming rice, that her vaginal juices when it drops into it, it becomes enchanted rice. So when they feed it to a lover, they are able to bewitch the lover. Okay. Interesting already, right? Inter- interesting myth. Okay. So whenever in army, when I was in army, I first learned about it in the army, 
um, whenever we go out and, and any friend doesn't want to come, the joke will always be like, hey, you don't want to come because your wife nasi kangkang you, right? Like, bewitch you has control over you. Okay. And it is very misogynistic mm-hmm. because it's about control. So my story, which I thought was interesting, which may be a good hook, a good idea, I feel quite confident. Lah. It's about a magic that nasi kangkang's her own son. Okay. A mother bewitching her son, yeah. her vaginal juices mm. in, in rice because it's about control. It's about what if what if a mother's son is going astray, like doing drugs, uh, like, and you're trying to control your son because you know what's best. And the story really begins when the mother is advancing in years and she feels she's going to die. And what happens when you have a son who has no opinion of his own? Mm. Where do you go from there? Right? What an interesting premise to start with. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think you know if it captures a certain degree of uh, imagination in terms of concepts that you have, you resonate with. It makes sense because, I, and I feel that you you feel for it, you immediately connect to it because it's the idea of of control, autonomy in Singapore as well. And you know, I love Singapore. I I love Singapore so much. I think we've done so many things right. I mean, can you believe it? We're here in a podcast in Singapore, whereas in other countries you have a strict lockdown. This may not even exist. Mm. Uh, but for all, all, all the positive things I can say, I will also say that we are trying to reconcile this notion of control between our predecessors and our future as well mm. in terms of what it really means to be a creative economy. And especially, you know, for example, as simple as like succession in terms of our leadership politically. You know, these are ideas where how much of our past creates such a legacy that we're unable to move progressively into the future as well, that we are so beholden to what has gone right that we do no longer take uh, creative, uh, 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 we no longer take uh, steps, creative steps towards decisions we made in the future because it's about risk mitigation. Yep. And um, no easy answers, honestly. But I can at least provide a question through the form of a film. Yeah. Oh, there's so many ways to end this. <laughs> I'm very curious I'm, to I'm know. I'm glad. I'm glad because I was, I, you know, when I was walking up the stairs, I was like, oh my God, what am I going to say? I'm going to be your most boring guest. <laughs> you know? Um, okay. So with the rise of, we talked about streaming sites like Netflix, mm-hmm. YouTube, and there's a lot of these uh, different mediums and everything. I'm just curious to know if you were to speculate, mm. what further disruptions on the horizon do you see with regards to the film industry? And how do you think the future of film might look like? Wow. I really need, I, I've not actually, there are enough challenges for me at the present that I've not considered so much into the future as well because it's, I feel like we're in a critical point where we're really thinking about survival. Mm. Because... Um, just to provide some context is that like our crew in Singapore are very fortunate because in other countries like Malaysia, Thailand, Vietnam, uh, I'm not sure about Indonesia, but yeah, they these other countries, they have lockdown. That means there are no shoots there. What happens as a result of this is that these shoots migrate to Singapore where Singaporean directors are directing ads for Thailand, mm. Vietnam, or other countries. And that's made the crew be able to sustain their cost of living and everything. There has been a great push towards uh, 
shorter than 20 hour days for production, physical production. Um, where I would say is that like we are at extreme at an extremely critical juncture mm. in, in 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 the road the road ahead. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know. <laughs> but it it really is a question of like do do we do we take it now where we are and not plan for the future and die in the future? Do we risk greater things now mm. in preparation for the future? Because what happens to the future? I don't know. Yep. I can tell you that 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 hundred percent that's dilution. Whereas in the past you just had cinemas, then you had cinemas and TV, and now you have cinemas, TV, YouTube, cinemas, TV, YouTube, TikTok. Yep. And it's gonna be a natural evolution because the way people choose to spend their time will be different. Mm. Which means to say that like when you do any sort of content on TV or on uh in terms in, in the form of a movie, you're gonna have to stand out from the pack. Mm. You're gonna have to provide something different or something special that no one else can provide in order to compel people to spend their time because time is a currency of itself. And I would say that there will be a point where our industry would feel oversaturated. Because of our government grants and everything supporting the industry currently, but I feel that out of the ashes, <laughs> oh, I must end like this, like end like some phoenix will rise. A, that's a you know, lyric from a metal song. Uh, full, full metal alchemist, <laughs> a brotherhood. Um, but yeah, no, I, 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 I firmly believe that like um, we have very exciting creators. It's just a question of I don't know whether they can beat the wave. It means to say that like right now Netflix, all the OTT players, because we have conversation with them, they're more interested in Thailand, Indonesia mm-hmm. as markets, purely because it can travel. You never hear of people in other countries watching a Singaporean show, right? But you hear of everybody around Southeast Asia watching Korean shows. Definitely. Same thing with Thais. You know, people watch Thai content as well. And the question is, you know, we, we need to make some hard decisions, some brave decisions in order to make Singapore content. And if we need to suffer and burn in order to get to that conclusion, you know, you got to let it happen organically as well. And, you know, we are way past the point of prevention. It's going to happen. It's really about like planning your resources for the future as well in terms of finding strong collaborators, nurturing strong creative talent in our industry so that in the future, after the storm, you are able to be a leader in, 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 in what we do in terms of storytelling because there'll always be a hunger for it. You know, it, it will be as simple as like reimagining the crew size. That itself, for me, I really feel strongly for because nowadays most shoots have like 20, 30 yeah. people on set, 30, 40 people. Mm. So you have your like makeup, makeup assistant, things like that. But what if I propose to you an alternative vision of the future. What if I propose to you the idea that a shoot can happen with just five people, the producer, the director, the sound man, the cinematographer, and an assistant, and that you are able to scale it down to a point where you are no longer fighting over the qual- the technical quality, mm. but the quality of storytelling, you know, because the quality of storytelling is going to, to differentiate your work from the rest of the world mm-hmm. because we're never ever going to be able to fight in terms of budget because we're such an expensive country. So it is about the quality of storytelling and I would immediately reference films like Once, which is a musical. Have you seen that? Oh, lovely. 
shot on like some sort of like handphone camera or something like that. But it's really about music and the ability to connect. Or even like simple as Blair Witch Project. Mm. Dance for Soul Trip is about the idea of it, right? So Singaporean filmmakers really need to change their perception of what film can be according to education because as Mark Twain once said, never let school get in the way of your education. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very good way to end the podcast. I think before we end, is there anything else that you would like to talk about? No, I mean, I'm, I'm really appreciative of the way you've conducted this podcast and I've really enjoyed it because I felt so free and easy to talk about like my thoughts and opinions and I think that um, for whoever gets makes it all the way to the end of this very long podcast I imagine um, you know you, no matter what you feel disappointed in with life or the successes you've achieved in life there is always a way to paid forward and not in a selfish nor uh, not in a selfish way and I think it's so important because one good turn begets another and you know that that really is what creativity you know a lot of it stems from right because you are taking other people's ideas other people who are so generous as to share with you the ideas to be able to continue that conversation and you know, we are a sm- young country, 56 this year. <laughs> and the fact that we are a young country means to say that we should also never feel too frustrated with where we are. Because these questions of identity always loom over us. Mm. But the sooner we discard it and just do what we like to do, then I think we'll arrive at the answer much faster. Yeah. All right. To end things off, where can people find your work and where can people find you online? Stuff like that. <laughs> wow. Um, so I think most of my work can be found on Apple. Uh, there's a local company called Little Seed that I think puts up like uh, Apprentice on iTunes. Uh, a lot of the Eric Koo films I've produced are, is on uh, Netflix. And um, well, piece of me, you guess you got to contact me directly. <laughs> yeah. But um, I, I would say that it's been an uh, absolute pleasure and... Um, I think rather than just watch my work, just watch Singaporean film filmmakers' works because um, there's so many beautiful people doing amazing work. I mean, you know, you, you've interviewed Martin Hong and I'm such a big fan of his work. Uh, you know, as a non-LGBTQ person watching what he did for Pink Dot, do you see it, the drag queen one? I have not. Oh, dude, insane, dude. He has a neon, neon version of the Dragon Playground uh, just swirling around. Interesting. And, you know... And these people, they don't do it to make money. I mean, money is a nice byproduct of it, but they really do it because they, they feel that they have something to share. And I think that just as we, we listen to people overseas, why not listen to one of our own? Listen to one of our own in terms of what we have to say about ourselves because, you know, when we listen to other people's voices, we are really trapped in a colonial narrative. We're trapped in a colonial narrative because we are not listening to the people around us. And we have amazing, smart, talented people around us, in t- uh, such as like Tomiko or Bilahari Kausukikan and other creatives in the industry as well. I mentioned two, po- two political figures. But yeah, I think, you know, it is time where we no longer feel inferior to others. 
But it is time for us to really just be chill and be ourselves, lah. You know, I think it's interesting you you mentioned about Martin's work and how amazing it is. Because the time when I spoke to him, I think that was back in, uh, I think twenty nineteen. Yeah, I think he just did, or he was on the. He, he just finished. He just was, knew Soko one. Yeah, and when I first saw that the the MV they did, the one that I think he shot in Thailand. Yeah, it's mind blowing. I was like, whoa, this is this is done locally. It, it feels like something you could see on a Britney Spears music video. Precisely, this was like created by someone local. And with Jasmine Soko and the set design and everything and the MV and the the motion graphics as well, it's done by a local studio. Perfect. Yeah, I agree, and I I I really am. You know, that's why I never look down on our local work because even if all creators are not like doing firing on all cylinders all the time, there are still bright lights. There are still filmmakers who may not do as good work, but they have sacrificed so much. And like, you know. I think I I believe strongly in in listening and giving people a chance because you know why do we need to succeed by the age of thirty? You know Zara the the founder only started Zara when he was in mid forties, right? Mm. In the same vein, I feel like we are subject to strong social pressures to certain expectations such that we forget that at forty, if you live to eighty, that's still half your life. <laughs> That's just perspective, ultimately. Yeah, it's true. It has been a blast of a conversation. Thank you for your time and thank you for the conversation. Uh, thank you, Kevin. I mean, uh, yeah, I just love rambling, lah. You know, I like those old grandma sitting by the by the porch when I'm like naive, throwing stones at, gr- at young kids because I'm grumpy and I'm self entitled. So. And I'm the one recording the conversation next to you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode and feel inspired. If you enjoyed what you heard thus far, do give us a follow on Instagram. And don't forget to share and subscribe. Stay tuned for the next episode.